Wake up. Freedom's on the rise. Great news. The vaccine is on its way. Oh, really? That's right. It's a brand new mRNA vaccine. So mRNA, that's never been done before, right? Oh, no, it's been done before. It just never made it out of the testing phase because all of the animals kept dying. But uh, but it'll be different this time. How so? Well, we're not going to do the animal testing. So, so you're just going to go straight to testing on humans? Yeah, you could say that. I mean, even so, don't most vaccines take years to develop and decades to test? It's here. The vaccine is here. Uh, already? That's right. It's here and it's 100% effective. No transmission, no infection. You don't have to wear a mask or stay locked down anymore. Wow, really? Yep. Except for the things about the mask and lockdown. Yep. Uh, okay, but it's 100% effective? That's right. 90% effective. And frankly, 85% effectiveness is really incredible. Oh, so it's only like 85% effective? Eh, not quite. It's uh, more like 75%. But Hey, 65% still very good. I mean, they said we'd never even get to 50% effectiveness, and we did almost. So 40%, really great achievement. So it's only like 40% effective now? For a bit. A bit? I mean, it wears off. So, Well, after how long? Like four to six. Four to six what? Booster shots a year. Okay, so it really only works like right after you get the shot. Well, not right after, because we don't even consider you vaccinated until two weeks after your second shot. So, okay, so it takes like a month for the shots to work, but it wears off. And even then, it only gives you mild protection, but you have to get boosters that also wear off. You still have to wear a mask, and you can still get COVID, and you still have to stay home. And there are rare but serious side effects. And all of this over a virus that has a survival rate of over 99.5%. Whoa, 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 whoa. I never said anything about uh, serious side effects. Uh, are there, though? Uh, certainly none I've ever discussed. Yeah, but have there been reports of serious side effects? No, no, no. I mean, it, except for like AIDS or whatever. Did you say AIDS? Hmm? Yeah, yeah. Basically, you like get AIDS and then there's this heart thing where your heart explodes and sometimes half your face falls asleep forever. And uh, almost everybody gets extreme nausea and pain at the site of the injection. Sometimes they just die right there at the injection site. But we're not sure that's caused by the vaccine, so we will not be looking into it. I, I cannot believe that pharmaceutical companies would actually release this to the American people. Oh, no, it's totally fine. They're completely indemnified against any wrongdoing, so they'll be fine. Right. Look, a vaccine is literally the only plan I have, so it's happening. It's coming out and everybody's taking it. Even if it's risky, even if you have natural antibodies, even if it doesn't stop transmission, you are taking it. Wait, but you said it did stop transmission. Oh, did I? Oopsie. No, I don't think I'll be getting that shot now. Well, what if I offer you some tasty french fries? No. Hmm, okay, well, what if I throw in a single glazed donut? No. You drive a hard bargain. Well, what if I give you a chance to win one million dollars? I mean, I feel like you're just trying to exploit my desperation at this point. I mean, look, this is about bodily autonomy. Oh, no, that doesn't exist. We, we checked. Checked with who? Uh, well, the experts, obviously. Now, tell you what, what if I tempt you with not losing your job? Oh, so it's going to be mandatory. Oh, nobody's mandating anything. It's entirely up to you whether you take the shot or whether you lose your job and become a despised pariah unworthy of basic decency or life-saving organ transplants. Yeah, I feel like you're forcing me to get this shot. Nobody is forcing you. Just take the jab. I'm not going to take the vaccine. Just just take the jab. I feel like I'm being forced here. Take the jab. No, no, no. You know what? I don't deserve this. I have a right to my own body. Uh, maybe I'll go protest. A protest? Yeah, that's uh, that's fun. Say, do you like having a uh, bank account? What? I'm just asking. Do you like having access to the money in your bank account? What are you saying? All I'm saying is there's no reason for you to be scared of a little needle. <laughs> Nothing to do with it. It's the only way to stop this pandemic. But you said it doesn't stop transmission. Exactly. That doesn't make any sense. <laughs>
God, some people are so stupid. You're not trusting the science hard enough. Look, it's not me telling you to take the jab. It's uh, actually your sister, Sarah. What? Yeah, your sister, Sarah, is requiring a vaccine to go to her wedding. So she works for me now. Oh, God, I mean, that it's like a once-in-a-lifetime event. All right, I guess I'll get the vaccine. <laughs> wow, what a coincidence. Where are the children? I don't think equipment could take over. We do rely on it a lot. I mean, we couldn't do what we do as we do it without it. We could still do a good, entertaining musical show, I suppose, without it. But all those things are down to how you control them and whether you're controlling them and not the other way around. It's just a question of using the tools that are available when they're available. And more and more now, there's all kinds of electronic goodies which are available people like us to use if we can be bothered and we can be bothered it's all extensions of what's coming out of our heads I mean, you've got to remember that it's, you've got to have it inside your head to be able to get it out at all anyway and the, the equipment isn't actually thinking of what to do any of the time it couldn't control itself Welcome back to Freedom's Rising. You are in the Bio Psy War Barrage, part three of that series. This is Freedom's Rising, episode 29, and today is July 20th, 2022. And we've been recording the Freedom's Rising series since May of 2022, May 20th, 2022. And uh, we've been intending to get back to the BioSci War, and we are doing this BioSci War barrage, sort of dropping heavy, heavy artillery across the board here, just getting caught up, really. Uh, there's so many things that have unfolded. There's so many stories, so many aspects to the BioSci War, including uh, monkeypox. Uh, we have in... July 17th of 2022, an article from Fauci that says, it's from CNN, it says, Fauci, monkeypox outbreaks need to be taken more seriously as the virus continues to spread and cases are likely uncounted. And uh, CNN says, as cases of monkeypox continue to rise in the U.S., a top health official is stressing the outbreak needs to be handled in a more rigorous manner. Quote, this is something we definitely need to take seriously. We don't know the scope and potential of it yet, but we have to act like it will have the capability of spreading much more widely than it's spreading right now, says Dr. Anthony Fauci on Saturday. Monkeypox has been detected throughout the U.S., and with the exception of a handful of states, according to the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the states with the most cases include New York, California, Illinois, and Florida. And uh, the article goes on. My, my purpose of bringing that up here is just that to recognize that that is going on. Uh, that was July 17th of 2022, so just three days ago, that they're putting these headlines out and this information. And the purpose here in the bio war of what we've 
are intending to do is to at least help people understand a wider context, a bigger picture of the biosci war and the various aspects <clears throat> to be able to implant some mental, mental firewalling, some antivirus, so to say in people's minds that are participating in this show that obviously if you're interested in this sort of information that we've been covering and have the attention span to do some of these longer episodes like today that you've been you know interested besides just what this show is revealing to you and and most likely uh it's not new completely new information but again there's so many various aspects of the biosci war that we need to cover various angles and so the public service that I'm attempting to do here with this series is to help uh, hopefully provide a good addition to that uh, work and help in that department. So again, we're doing sort of a bio war recap. Uh, some of the information at the end of today's episode has been discussed and covered before in the bio war. And I, I see myself as a, a, a repeater and a con consolidator and repeater of information that whether you want to look at it as a step up transformer or a step down, <laughs> depending on where you're coming from, but taking information from a, a wide array of sources, uh, reputable sources, not the one I just read, CNN's not a reputable source, but we were just covering part of the psychological warfare that's ongoing. Uh, and then putting that into indelible published podcasts that uh, are going to last through uh, the archive and in uh, going to be put into the archive and last uh, through so that people can pick these up and they're easily transportable, easily shareable. Uh, the clip that we opened up there with was the vaccine pitch meeting, and that was from Harrison Smith. Harris, Harrison Smith of the American Journal from Band.Video, and sort of doing a parody or a skit on how ridiculous the you know the vaccinations were supposed to work and supposed to be effective and then it turns out they don't really work and they're not really effective and they're not safe and they're not tested and there isn't enough data but the the walking back of it all right that oh well yeah well, now that everybody's already taken the vaccine yeah I, I guess they didn't really stop to spread the COVID-19 oh they don't they don't work against the variants and uh uh, they don't really work for that long, and you're not really. That's why you need to keep getting the booster. And and since there's a variant, you got to have the new vaccine for the variant. And so we're going to be looking at you know anywhere from five to ten boosters a year. You know, and I thought that that was a hilarious skit. Also, you know, kind of disgustingly hilarious. And then of course we heard uh, the Pink Floyd introduction in the intro there in the montage that what I've been telling you about with the, you know, live at Pompeii recording where Roger Waters is like, well, we can be bothered. And that's, that's sometimes how I feel when I'm attempting to, you know, get motivated to do the podcast. And it's like, yeah, I can be bothered to do this. I can be bothered to use the equipment that I have available to me and make sure that the equipment isn't controlling me, but that I'm controlling it. As uh, David Gilmour was saying there, and there's kind of funny English accents, and one of the best albums, really, of all time, and the best recordings uh, live at Pompeii there, I think, and uh, one of the better bands throughout history as well. So a shorter montage introduction, as we have things to cover today, we'll get back to the article that we were talking about 
uh, that we were reading from yesterday, the U.S. firm with ties to the WEF, DOD, implicated in bioweapons cover-up. And that article on the Defender, Children's Health Defense News and Views, uh, by Dr. Joseph Mercola. We'll get back to that and wrap up that article. Uh, but really quick, Metabiota from their Wikipedia, which again is only being referenced as a general information encyclopedia that we know is not 100% accurate all the time, and in fact is playing a large role in the cover-up of legitimate information, often throwing things off that it that the people behind Wikipedia don't want the public to know as conspiracy and slandering people that have alternative views. And we can see that across the board when people uh, start to defect against the mainstream narrative that they can, you know, be uh, slandered in Wikipedia. And it's, it's not always not accurate. I mean, I'm sure that sometimes there is people that are wildly inaccurate and crazy people that are then mentioned in Wikipedia, and that's accurate. But then there's also, you know, instances of whistleblowers and other people that just get completely uh, misrepresented in Wikipedia. But just to get a general sense for what Metobiota is, according to Wikipedia, as we've been learning more about this, uh, this organization, uh, Wikipedia says, Metobiota is a San Francisco startup that compiles data from around the world to predict disease outbreaks. The company is partnered with the USAID's Predict and Prevent programs. In the early months of the SARS-CoV-2 outbreak, Metobiota and Blue Dot independently demonstrated the capabilities of computer analytics to map the future spread of viruses between countries. In an effort to expand its business offerings, Metobiota teamed up with insurance groups, groups Marsh, African Risk Capacity, and Munich RE to provide data for outbreak coverage. Coverage would pay out to governments or companies based on stages of severity of an outbreak to help pay the cost to respond. Google invested $1 million into the company while also planning to act as a partner to provide expertise in data analysis. Hunter Biden's Rosemont Seneca Technology Partners was reported to have a 13.4 stake in the company in 2014. The investment and Metobiota's work with Black and Viat at Labs in Ukraine led the company being flagged in Russia's bioweapons claims during the 2022 invasion of Ukraine. The company had stationed in Kenema supporting the Sierra Leone government when the Western African Ebola virus epidemic began. Medicines Sans Frontieres criticized the company for falling, failing to discover early cases and for not sharing data or, contacting or contact tracing information. Metobiota responded saying they were restricted to reporting only the local governments. And there's some references and that's it. I mean, you would think there would be a lot more information about this company in Wikipedia. Uh, the founder being Nathan Wolf, as we talked about him being one of the young global leaders of the World Economic Forum. And uh, interesting tie in there with uh, DARPA and EcoHealth Alliance, as well as uh, Scientific American. Uh, 
he again is the founder of Metabiota, Nathan Wolf. And he was mentioned in the article that we're going to get into. So just to discuss, we've been trying to catch up with, you know, what what's happening in the Ukraine, what's happening with these bio labs allegations. And we had Dave Emery provide context with his for the record uh, episode number 1248, the Ukraine war meets the Oswald Institute of Virology. And that was only part one of what I think is a three part series. I don't know if he'll add more to that, but there's three parts. So there's two more parts to that. And then also the articles and references and comments that go along with those are just tremendous pieces of work. I mean, there's so much information there. Very valuable resource. We're not going to be playing part two today. We're going to be switching it up into something else. Uh, we have to, you know, be sure we're backfilling and we're going to go back to a documentary released in 2020 by Clint Richardson at the end here called Wagging the Dog, the story behind the story of COVID-19, something like that. It might be the real story of the story behind COVID-19. And Clint Richardson, of course, uh, someone who I featured on the BioSci War before and Wagging the dog, the story behind the story of COVID-19. Yeah, so I had it right. And we'll have a, a link to that in the show notes as well, that you can go watch the full documentary yourself. We're going to be playing a good chunk of that today into the episode. And so a large majority of this episode is going to be that. But it, it's a good it's a good high-level review of what's been going on in the scientific community surrounding gain-of-function and more context into the agenda and uh, the mad scientists that are uh, speaking for themselves, you know, in the documentary. And of course, Clint is providing context and research and data from his own uh, platform. And, you know, he he's very good at navigating through the information, but he also heavily relies on the, just the information that's out there and available. Um, I think people who had not thought about or hadn't been involved in the research or in the fields of gain of function or weaponizing viruses, essentially, is what it would have been called uh, prior to the post-World War II era. Uh, we would have been referring to these things as biological weapons programs. Uh, now they're referred to gain of as gain of function, you know, dual use, these, these sorts of terms. Um, dual use really just being, meaning that it can be offensive or defensive, that inherent in the research is the aspects of, of both of those things. And uh, we're going to let Clint come in and explain more, and we'll learn more once we get to that outro, long outro clip here that we'll be playing into the record today. But let's get back to the article so I can make sure and get that finished up here. Uh, again, reading from the Joseph Mercola's article on the Defender Children's Health Defense, and we left off about halfway through the article, and so we're going to pick up where I left off with the section WIV, Deleted Mentions of U.S. Collaborators. The WIV also deleted information in what appears to be an effort to shield the NIH shortly after Fauci's testified 
In the Senate hearings in March 2021, the WIV quietly deleted all mentions of its collaborations with Fauci's NIAID, the NIH, and other American research partners from its website. As reported in May 15th of 2021 by the National Post, and then it excerpts that article here, the next three or four paragraphs, quote, March 21st, 2021, the lab's website listed six U.S.-based research partners, University of Alabama, University of North Texas, EcoHealth Alliance, Harvard University, the Nas- National Institute of Health, the United States, and the National Wildlife Federation. One day later, the page was revised to contain just two research partners, EcoHealth Alliance and the University of Alabama. By March 23rd, EcoHealth Alliance was the sole partner remaining. EcoHealth Alliance is run by the long-standing Chinese Communist Party partner Peter Dejak, who National Pulse Editor-in-Chief Rahim Kazam has repeatedly claimed will be the first fall guy of the Wuhan lab debacle. Being established... Oh, sorry, starting again. Beyond, and this is still excerpting from that National Post article posted in May 15th, 2021. Beyond establishing a working relationship between the NIH and the Wuhan Institute of Virology, now deleted posts from this site also detail studies bearing the hallmarks of -of gain-of-function research conducted with the Wuhan-based lab. And now it's back to Mercola says, Indeed, a now-deleted WIV page titled, quote, Will SARS Come Back, unquote, stated that, and then it quotes, Professor Shi Zing Li, Xingling Shi, let me, yeah, it's not Shi Zing Li, it's Shi Gli Shi and Xiao Li Ji from WIV Incorporated in cooperation with researchers from University of North Carolina, Harvard Medical School, Bellinzona Institute of Microbiology, examined the disease potential of a SARS-like virus, SHCO14-CoV, which is currently circulating in Chinese horseshoe bats populations. Using the SARS-CoV reverse genetic system, the scientists generated a characterized the scientist generated and characterized a chimeric virus expressing the spike of a bat coronavirus, SHCO14, in a mouse-adapted SARS-CoV backbone. The results indicate that a group 2B viruses encoding the SHCO14 spike in a wild-type backbone can efficiently use multiple orthologs of the SARS receptor Human anti- angiotensin, cover, uh, angiotensin covering enzyme two ACE two replicate uh, replicate efficiently in primary human airway cells and achieve in vitro titters equivalent to the epidemic strains in SARS CoV. Sorry, I sort of butchered that. Continuing on evaluation of available SARS-based immune therapeutic and prophylactic modalities revealed poor efficacy. Both monoclonal antibodies and vaccine approaches failed to neutralize and protect from infection with COVs 
using the novel spike protein. On the basis of these findings, they synthetically re-derived an infectious full-length SHCO14 recombinant viruses uh, virus and demonstrate robust viral replication both in vitro and in vivo. And so again, that was um, a now deleted WIV page titled "Will SARS Come Back?" And then he links to that in a web the web archive. Will SARS come back from, you know, a 2015, a December 2015 article that we now have access to in the archives because it's on our, the webarchive.org. Thank, thank you, Wayback Machine, for, uh, you know, linking us back to this SARS-CoV Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome uh, article that was taken down, apparently, and is now available for us to read. Uh, So that's pretty important. So continuing on with the article, the WIV's deletion of American research partners from its website, with the exception of EcoHealth Alliance, and its deletion of the article discussing genetic research on the SARS virus, only served to strengthen suspicions of cover-up. At the time, the most surprising thing about it was that they were covering up American involvement, and not just their own. And then the next section is called, Are We the Bad Guys? And then there's a excerpt from something that uh, Majid Nawaz posted. It says, When Soviets in Cuba pointed nuclear missiles at the U.S., Americans freaked out. If the U.S. in Ukraine stationed bioweapons in Russia's border, Russians will freak out. Russians ain't no friend, but it's dangerous pushing them towards the CCP. And I think he said that on the Joe Rogan show, or that's a summary of what he said when he went on Joe Rogan. Uh, also something that we heard from, uh, what, what was that guy's name? Uh, Jeff, Jeffrey Sachs, who was saying the same thing, and that he think that, uh, that we're pushing Russia further to the east, and that he also thought that the uh, COVID-19 was a U.S. bio lab's creation. And then back to the article here. Alas, as noted by Majid Majid Nawaz, a former Islamist revolutionary who became an anti-extremist activist, it turns out that the U.S. did in fact engage in illegal bioweapons development in the Ukraine. It might just turn out that we're the bad guys here. He writes, in part, and here's, there's quite a bit here uh, from Majid, so the next little bit that we'll be reading is something that he wrote, and that's hyperlinked to an article uh, on his website that's called Are We the Baddies? And here it says, On the 24th of February 2022, the very day of Russia's invasion, some of us were already worried about the prospect of biological weapons laboratories existing in Ukraine. The existence of the bioweapons labs in Ukraine border with Russia has since been confirmed by both the Russia and the U.S., and parenthetically, I say both because the Ukrainian government is essentially serving as a U.S. proxy. The only remaining question is around what we are doing with those laboratories. It is no longer in doubt that we funded bioweapons research in the Wuhan lab in China from where it is now believed that the COVID most likely leaked from. So we're doing the same in Ukraine too. Russia has certainly made the allegations. The official representative of the Russian Ministry of Defense, Defense Major General Igor Konoshevkan, stated 
In the course of a special military operation, the facts of an emergency cleansing by the Kiev regime of traces of military and biological programs being implemented in Ukraine, funded by the U.S. Department of Defense, were uncovered. With this, he released a document dropping a document drop alleging that these papers substantiated the case. If Russia's allegations hold up, the U.S. and her proxy Ukrainian regime would be in violation of the first article of the U.N. Convention on Prohibition of Bacteriological, Biological, and Toxic Weapons. Russia announce, Russia's announcement appeared to have forced America's hand to admit that such biolabs do indeed exist. U.S. Undersecretary of State Victoria Newland framed this admission by stating that these labs were for defense research only. Undersecretary Newland, however, continued to make the case that such labs would be dangerous if they fell into Russian hands. Without apparently noticing the contradiction inherent in her position that such, such labs are only dangerous because they can be weaponized. Matching Russians' precision strikes to a map of biolab locations inside Ukraine certainly does suggest that Putin's special military operation appears to be targeting some of these dangerous labs. And then there's a map on the page here of Russian missile strikes against Ukrainian targets. All military airports are apparently destroyed. And, and now we're out of Nawaz's statements and back to the article. Indeed, Nawaz highlights a 2021 Ukrainian petition to President Zelensky asking for A, the immediate closure of, quote, American biolaboratories in territories of Ukraine, unquote, and B, an investigation into activities of those labs, and C, an investigation into potential Ukrainian participation in the creation of SARS-CoV-2. In other words, at least some Ukrainians by 2021 were wondering whether the U.S. labs in their country might have been involved in the creation of this pandemic. And then there's another map just showing U.S. bio labs in Ukraine. You can reference the article to see that those pictures. The next section here is titled, Denouncing Ring Hollow. Not surprisingly, the U.S. State Department took a hard line denouncing all allegations with the statement that, quote, the United States does not have chemical and biological weapons labs in Ukraine, unquote. In another statement that's hyperlinked, the State Department, quote, clarified, unquote, that the labs were for biodefense, not biological weapons thus semantically cleansing their criminal activities. I mean, and, and we, we see this all the time with this mixing of words. It's biodefense. It's not, it's not for offense. I mean, when would a country ever admit now in, in today's day that they're offensively creating bioweapons in labs? I mean, no, they're always going to say, oh, it's for defense purposes. It's not the Department of Offense. It's the Department of Defense, don't you know? Uh, it's... It's a uh, completely neutral. It has, you know, they're make, trying to make it sound like what they're doing is okay. Always with these justifications that, uh, oh, it's just for you know, in, in case this thing jumps out of nature, we got to have the vaccines ready. And um, you know, as we'll hear more from their own mouth in the closing clips, uh, that they'll continue to use these justifications to continue on with the research and continue to get their funding. Uh, Regardless of the warnings and people constantly pointing out the dangers of this sort of thing. 
So back to the article. Bioweapons expert Francis Boyle, and we'll hear from him later too, who drafted the Biological Weapons Anti-Terrorism Act of 1989, has also pointed out that most BSL-4 labs are dual use. Quote, they first develop the offensive biological warfare agent, and then they develop the supposed vaccine. And that's hyperlinked, unquote. And then there's the weapons proliferation agreement between the U.S. and the Ukraine signed at the end of August 2005. And there's a copy of like the front page of that um, treaty, which is an agreement between the United States of America and Ukraine. And the uh, excerpt on that page that I can see says, Agreement between the Department of Defense and the United States of America and the Ministry of Health of Ukraine concerning the cooperation in the area of prevention and proliferation of technology, pathogens, and expertise that could be used in the development of biological weapons. The Department of Defense and the United States of America, U.S. Department of Defense, and the Ministry of Health of Ukraine, hereinafter referred to jointly as the parties. And then, you know, that is all I can see of that particular article, but it is um, hyperlinked. Again, the people that created this article actually know how to use hyperlinks. I think uh, the people over there at CNN, uh, they don't they don't know yet how to use those. They just say CNN says or experts say. Uh, they never actually hyperlink to the sources. Here we've got an article full of hyperlinks and sources. Incidentally, continuing on, incidentally, former President Barack Obama spearheaded the project to construct these Ukrainian labs back in 2005 when he was still a senator, and curiously, the online announcement of his involvement in the project has also been deleted from the web. According to this agreement, the U.S. Department of Defense will assist the Ministry of Health in Ukraine at no cost to prevent, quote, proliferation of technology, pathogens, and expertise, unquote, found in a number of Ukraine labs that, quote, could be used in the development of biological weapons, unquote. The next section is the burning question of intent, and this will take us out, and there's there's a bit here, but, uh, this will be the end of the article. So the agreement itself clarifies that they're working on pathogens that could be used as biological weapons. And Newland's statement concern, concerns back this up. The only question remaining then is one of intention. What's the intended use of these pathogens, defense or offense? And is there really a difference? As noted by Nawaz, the U.S. clinging to the defense of, quote, biodefense and anti-bioweapons proliferation is, quote, the equivalent of denying that Einstein's discovery of splitting the atoms to generate energy is not also something that could be used to make nuclear weapons. After the COVID outbreak, the notion that biolabs can be weaponized should simply be presumed as a rule, unquote. Also, consider the network of players reviewed earlier, the Ukrainian-American collaboration to study pathogens capable of weaponizing of weaponization is run by the DTRA, which funds Metobiota, which is run by WEF leader and close personal ties to one person, Dayzak, suspected of being a key player in the creation of the SARS-CoV-2, a go-between of the NIH and the WIV, and a central force in the cover of the lab league theory. Senator Poole, 
Senator Paul, we never funded the gain-of-function research in China. Senator Paul, you are wildly off basis here. Senator Paul, you do not know what you're talking about. Even though it's pretty well documented and covered and known now that the funding of EcoHealth Alliance was involved that organization was involved in the uh, gain-of-function research done at the WIV. So it's just this obfuscation, right? But back to the article. Sorry for the bad uh, Fauci impression. I, I didn't think that was actually too bad. Interestingly, Meadowbiota is also financed financially backed by Hunter Biden's investments in the company. And let's not forget that young Biden also collected a six-figure salary from the Ukrainian gas company for doing literally nothing other than supplying his, quote, powerful name, unquote. Circumstantial or not, it just doesn't look good. And by now, it should be crystal clear that any lab doing defensive work is equally capable of churning out offensive weapons. Debating that point is just silly, as it boils down into semantics. According to the Bulgarian journalist Diljana, I'm not even going to try to say her last name, Maybe I will. Gaitanyan Savi. Sorry about that. I'm not a Bulgarian, so I don't know how they pronounce those crazy last names. But according to the Bulgarian journalist Diljana G, Medobiata is a key player in the Ukrainian labs. David Horowitz, a political writer, has noted that Medobiata is, quote, a company that tracks and trajectory that tracks the trajectory of outbreaks and sells pandemic insurance, but also seems to have its hand in actual labs that might be the source of some of these outbreaks, unquote. In other words, could it be that Metobiota has been producing biological agents under diplomatic cover and then selling pandemic insurance and pandemic trackers to, quote, help countries get ahead of what they're putting out, unquote? Nawaz asks, that's hyperlinked, quote, was ensuring that a that a next pandemic doesn't occur by taking out these bio labs what Putin had in mind by his phrase special military operation unquote at this point it seems like a valid question indeed that is a valid question and it says this was originally published in Mercola the views and opinions of this article da 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 and then that was also hyperlinked but when i go to mercola's site looks like i'm getting some kind of offer uh and it looks like maybe that was originally published on mercola's site but i was reading it from the defender children's health defense uh who looks like they're syndicating those articles over um i would be interested in getting into the comments of that article but speaking of comments and going back again uh actually really quick I'd like to play a clip into the record here from uh, when Senator Marco Rubio uh, was questioning Miss Newland on the Russian invasion of Ukraine and talking about the bio labs there. Let's go ahead and just play this clip live into the record here. And it would mean nothing. We would notice nothing. He's more than happy to agree to negotiations. He uses them to divide the opposition and demoralize them habitually. Uh, the way Putin has done as well. Um, I only have a minute left. Let me ask you, um, does Ukraine have chemical or biological weapons? 
Ukraine has uh, biological research facilities, which, in fact, we are now quite concerned Russian troops, Russian forces may be seeking to uh, gain control of. That looks like it's like loading or something. Come on. We're concerned that Russia is trying to gain control of them, but then she's going to go in to tell us how they're not dangerous. Then why would it matter if Russia got control of them? <laughs> okay. Let's try to get this to divide to play. the opposition and demoral opposition uh, the way. Logical research facilities, which, in fact, we are now quite concerned Russian troops, Russian forces may be seeking to uh, gain control of. We are working with the Ukrainians on how they can prevent any of those research materials from falling into the hands of uh, Russian forces should they approach. I'm sure you're aware that the Russian propaganda groups are already putting out there all kinds of information about how they've uncovered a plot by the Ukrainians to release biological weapons in the country. Remember, it's and always propaganda. If there's a biological or chemical weapon... It's never true because it's Russia. It can never be or, true. Uh, or attack inside of Ukraine. Is there any doubt in your mind that 100% it would be the Russians that would be behind it? There is no doubt in my mind, Senator. Sorry, guys. This clip is... It these is guys have horrible classic bandwidth. classic Russian uh, technique to blame on the other guy what they're planning to do themselves. Last question. Um, I, I am certain that the Russians were looking at their foreign, at their reserves as a way to buffer sanctions. Do you know how, now that we've sanctioned the central bank along with others, what, do we have an idea what percentage of their reserves are frozen or inaccessible to them? Uh, virtually all of them are now frozen. You notice it froze that up the again. country's been under currency controls for almost two weeks now. And the whole point of putting so many of these. So uh, I'm going to stop it there. It's not playing well. And it looks like they're getting into sanctions and reserves. But yeah, oh, it's a classic Russian technique to to project on the enemy what they're what they're actually doing. Yeah, it's not a classic American technique to do the same thing. And, you know, no mention of the, the Hunter Biden funding, the DTRA funding, the Metabiota involvement, uh, of course, in those eco labs, but the inherent contradiction that they're just bio labs and they're, uh, we're worried about them getting into the hands of the Russians. Well, why? I mean, if they're like just, uh, basically like dental office, bio level, facilities then why does it matter you know what if russia gets a hold of them um I, I just thought you know since that clip was probably out there that we'd play it into the record here um it was about as interesting as i as i thought it would be the other thing that i wanted to get into while we have the time here is at the bottom of the article from emory there was a great comment now the article i'm calling it the Ukraine War Meets the Oswald Institute of Virology, Part 1. It was a podcast, but he puts out a tremendous uh, amount of resource material in the follow-up when he posts the articles. And there's a there's a person who's a contributing editor and a commenter on Emery's posts he refers to, and that person refers to themselves as Terra Fractal. 
And that person usually provides a lot of context to the situation. And since I have the time here, I just wanted to read something else into the record here that was that I was going over this morning. We'll see how much of it I can get into. But there's on the top of the comments here, it says, Here's a Wired article from back in June of 2020 that delves into one of the more fascinating aspects of Metabiota's business model, the company's role in the pandemic insurance industry. As we're going to see, it was a remarkable role in a number of ways, including some of the remarkable apparent luck, the kind of luck that, in part, can be engineered in a lab. As we described in Alexis Badenmeyer's article on Metabiota's work related to gain-of-function research and the international network of, network of researchers working with EcoHealth Alliance, Metabiota, as initially the Global Viral Forecasting Initiative, GVFI, a nonprofit academic effort at setting up research outposts around the world to track regional, quote, viral chatter, unquote, and predict when the next global pandemic is about to hit, it was the GVFI that eventually morphed into the, form, the for-profit Metabiota and went on to work closely with EcoHealth Alliance's PREDICT program. Recall how the PREDICT program was one of EcoHealth Alliance's major sources of government grants. So when we're talking about the work of GVFI and Metabiota, it really should be seen as big data components of this larger collaboration centered around PREDICT. But as we're going to see, there was another area of interest for Metabiota that was separate from its that was separate from its with Predict and EcoHealth Alliance, separate and yet deeply related. Metabiota's big data capacity for predicting emerging pandemics was just being used by the Predict initiative. Starting in 2013, Metabiota began partnering with German reinsurance giant Munich RE and began working on what could eventually become a kind of pandemic insurance covered off coverage offered to business. Metabiota's pandemic prediction tools were used to create global pandemic uh, indices, and once the index crossed the threshold level, Munich RE would have to pay out those entities covered by the insurance. Metabiota was operating as a kind of independent third party who would assess the severity of the pandemic for determining whether or not the payouts of the pandemic coverage was warranted. It sounds like Munich RE previously be, uh, has previously been planning on using the WHO's, pan, quote, pandemic phases, unquote, assessment for determining the severity of pandemics for these insurance policies. But sometime in 2013, the WHO abandoned that system for more vague systems that didn't have clearly delineated stages of severity. That was the year Munich RE reached out to Metabiota. While the idea of pandemic insurance might seem like an obvious solution for businesses, there are reasons it isn't already widespread exists. For starters, it's difficult to get businesses to sign up for coverage against something that's often only seen once every hundred years. That obviously isn't a problem now, but the pre-COVID that was indeed a problem for the insurance industry, including the Munich RE and Metabiota, who were offering this coverage literally right before the pandemic, starting in mid-2018. 
so pandemic insurance was available to businesses for a year and a half before the pandemic, but virtually no one brought up their insurance before the pandemic. No one bought their insurance before the pandemic. We're told that one company bought it, although we aren't told which company on or how much they were paid. It was an example of the remarkable luck experienced by Meadow, Biota, and Munich RE. They would have lost big if they had almost immediate if they had to almost immediately pay out, but they dodged that bullet, and in the process of the greatest advertisement for the product transpired in the form of a pandemic and interest in the insurance has skyrocketed, the apparent luck was just outstanding. But another reason pandemic insurance is so atypical, pandemic insurance might be make sense for the, from the standpoint of a business, but it doesn't make business sense for insurance companies. That's because pandemics strike everyone at once, which makes pandemics a very difficult form of catastrophe for an insurance company to provide coverage against versus coverage for something like hail that's only going to impact a particular region at any given point. The business model for pandemic insurance doesn't p- pandemic insurance doesn't make sense. So Munich RE found a way to make it make business sense by selling off the risk of the pandemic to investors. The idea is that Munich RE will pay investors each year there isn't a pandemic, but when a pandemic does hit, those investors will have to pay out to Munich RE to help cover the costs. So as long as Munigari can find investors who are willing to take relatively bad bet, the company can effectively offload the cost of its pandemic payouts. Oh, and guess which particular investor class they had in mind? Pension funds. As we've seen, pension funds hungry for higher yields have already been avid investors in the private equity sector. So it looks like making pandemic bets might be a part of their future too. The idea is that a pandemic is going to selectively kill off the elderly, easing the cost burden on pension funds. So in addition to Meadow Biota's extensive work with the international network of researchers involved with gain-of-function research on coronaviruses, it is also playing a key role in developing a whole new pandemic insurance marketplace with Munich RE, And that brings us to another fascinating fun fact. We're told that part of what makes the emerging of the coronavirus pandemic so remarkable for Metabiota is that the company had run a large set of scenarios forecasting the consequences of a novel coronavirus spreading around the globe two years prior, which raises the fascinating question, did Metabiota's factor in the risk of a lab leak in its risk models? It was literally working with a network of researchers working on gain-of-function coronavirus research, so it's not like Metobiota wasn't aware it was happening. And that gets us to what is perhaps the most remarkable part of this whole story. The company that was playing a key pandemic informatics role in the insurance sector was also deeply involved in the networks of research building novel viruses in the lab. Some might consider that a conflict of interest. Uh, in, and then it says here from the Wired Magazine article, we can't protect the economy from pandemics. Why didn't we? We can protect the economy from pandemics. Why didn't we? 
a virologist helped correct an impossible problem, how to insure against the economic fallout from devastating viral outbreaks. The plan was ingenious, yet we're still in this mess. And then a quote from Nathan Wolf, it says, It's really a hundred-year thing, unquote, Nathan Wolf said. It was 2006, and Wolf, then a 36-year-old virologist with an unruly nest of curly hair, was sitting across the table from me and bustling restaurant in Uvandi, the capital of Cameroon. An epidemiological professor at UCLA, he had been living in the West in West Africa for six years, establishing a research center to identify the study of viruses as they crossed over from wild animals into humans. That night, Wolf told me that he was forming a network of research outposts around the globe, in hotspots where potentially devastating viruses were poised to make the jump. Cameroon, where HIV likely passed from chimpanzees into local hunters, the Democratic Republic of Congo, which has seen the human outbreaks of monkeypox, Malaysia home to the 1998 emergence of the nymph virus, uh, uh, Nipah virus, and China, where SARS-CoV had crossed over, likely from bats. In 2002, Wolf's hope was that by understanding what he called the viral chatter of such places, it would be possible not only to react more quickly to outbreaks, but to forecast their arrival and stop them before they spread. The, quote, hundred-year thing he was talking about was a global pandemic, and how history would judge humanity's efforts to prepare for it. His biggest fear, he said, was that a virus unknown to human immune defenses starting a human-to-human transmission chain that would encircle the globe. And I'm just going to cut away from that. It goes on uh, from that Wired magazine article, but I think that's a lot of propaganda there too. I mean, they're genetically engineering the viruses in labs and then like, oh, we're just waiting for the zoonautical threat to happen and, you know, then ensuring uh, the pandemic insurance game that they got going while creating pandemics in labs. And, you know, this kind of cover-up of, of where AIDS came from and where, uh, or the HIV uh, passing from chimpanzees into local hunters. Yeah, not, not having anything to do uh, with the government doing the same thing back in those days and studying these viruses and uh, creating them in labs and perhaps even intentionally spreading them around and creating pandemics. Or outbreaks. I wouldn't, I don't know if AIDS was a pandemic global, but it would definitely, you know, more, more to dig into there. But we'll have to c- come back next episode to continue on with, uh, the BioSciWar barrage, uh, for myself anyway. You guys are going to get to now enjoy the opening three hours of the Wagging the Dog. It's almost a seven hour documentary. And when I first heard this, Back in 2020, I believe, was when I first heard it. Uh, my jaw was on the floor like half of the time I was listening to it, at least. And it really is what inspired me to also dig in and start researching more and do uh, eventually what became the bio war when I started to try to reach out to family members or to people in my immediate circle of influence and discuss these things with them. Uh, I could see that there was just no understanding and no interest of any of these details. And back then it was like, uh, you know, it was, you couldn't talk about gain of function. You couldn't talk about lab leak. You couldn't talk about any of these things. 
And now it's like common knowledge, you know, of course, you know, and, uh, and these things are, you know, w well known that we do. But, and, you know, I, I want to say that I had some part in, in putting the information out to help with that through the BioSci War. But uh, Clint and his excellent work here in this documentary is what um, people could be doing with their time and taking in this information. It's going to take a longer attention span to get through for those that are looking for like the next thing on Facebook and the next dopamine hit. Uh, they probably still aren't even listening now to this only hour long that we're into this episode now. But uh, for those with the longer attention span who haven't heard Clint's documentary or seen it, uh, can go check it out, the full thing in the show notes. It's a video version, obviously, so it's not just in the audio format here. But I find that also when you listen to things via audio, you get a different take. Maybe if you've seen it before, listening to it while, um, again, you're doing your thing, uh, having your work day, and hearing the information versus seeing it, I think can sometimes be a different way of taking in information. So we'll be back with more BioSciWar Barrage. Uh, we'll continue on the series. I don't think we're wrapped up yet. We have a lot more Barrage to cover. Uh, you can find this work on tylerbloyer.com. That's my main website. The Freedoms Rising series is also posted at freedomsrising.live, where I also maintain a 24-7 live stream of important information that I feel like people need to see. Uh, you can tune into the 24-7 live stream when you're done listening to this podcast and see what's happening out there in the world of solutions. There's also um, bio war stuff put in there as well, but then there's also a lot of clips with, you know, solution-oriented activists out there trying to create a better world. And ultimately, that's what the public service here is with the Freedoms Rising show and the bio war barrage is to help Expose the lies, uh, teach others, think bigger, um, you know, don't just dig into the fear porn, but actually try to understand uh, part of our world and the history of it and what's going on in it now. And uh, we'll go ahead and leave it there. But if you'd like to sign up for email alerts at tylerbloyer.com, we can send you updates on the projects that we're working on. And that way, you'll always be able to stay up to date and stay notified with what we're doing here over at the tylerbloyer.com show. So appreciate you guys. Um, go ahead and check back with us in the next BioSciWar episode, and we'll talk to you then. Thanks. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Fauci. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here with you today. Um, the idea that we are now uh, a few days away from a new administration, there is no question that there will be a challenge to the coming administration in the arena of infectious diseases, both chronic infectious diseases in the sense of already ongoing disease, and we have certainly a large burden of that, but also there will be a surprise outbreak.
the common term bird flu is for the H5N1 virus that was first picked up around 1997. And public health people have been watching this extremely carefully since that time, always concerned that that would be the next influenza epidemic. It kills about 60% of those who it infects. It kills about 60% of those who it infects. However, it has not been able to continue through human transmission. It has not been able to continue through human transmission. In other words, it has not developed the ability to go from person to person to person to person. It's a very serious disease, and we're hoping that it doesn't obtain the ability to be easily transmitted. We're hoping that it doesn't obtain the ability to be easily transmitted. Gain-of-function research involves creation of pathogens that are more transmissible or deadly than naturally occurring strains. While this kind of research can have important public health benefits, it can also pose serious risks regarding biosafety and biosecurity. In 2014, the US government called for a deliberative process to determine what policy regarding the funding and conduct of gain-of-function research should be. In the meantime, they imposed a pause on gain-of-function research involving influenza, SARS and MERS viruses, SARS and MERS viruses, SARS and MERS viruses, and they imposed a pause on gain-of-function research involving influenza, SARS and MERS viruses, and commissioned a risk-benefit assessment of this kind of research. As part of the deliberative process, the US National Institutes of Health, NIH, also commissioned the Monash Centre of Human Bioethics to produce an ethical analysis white paper. The centre conducted a review of the ethical literature and analysed the existing ethical and decision-making frameworks relevant to situations involving risk and uncertainty. The white paper develops a new framework to indicate where any given study would fall on an ethical spectrum, a useful guide for actual decision-making. The white paper was tabled at the White House and will help lift the US block on important gain-of-function research while keeping us safe. Another really popular topic in the science of infectious disease right now and in, in the popular literature are what are so-called gain-of-function gain experiments. And so this has come up several times in several questions in the forum. And so these, these, this is research that adds functionality and, in fact, oftentimes increases virulence of existing pathogens increases virulence of existing pathogens, increases virulence of existing pathogens to allow us to study them and study the characteristics they have when they're now worse off, right? And study the characteristics they have when they're now worse off, they're now worse off, right? But so many of us can immediately from a sort of sci-fi standpoint, imagine what the costs and the fears associated with these, uh, with these experiments are. But so the, 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 the important question is, what are the potential benefits are, of, are there for these? And, and if, if there aren't any, then perhaps we shouldn't be doing them. But it, we need to understand what the potential benefits are if we're going to have a, a reasoned discussion about whether or not these experiments should continue. So maybe not everybody um, uh, have heard about it. I, I think there's been a lot of discussion about it. But I think one of the uh, 
big issues that precipitated this discussion was was it two years ago when there were two different labs that genetically um, engineered the H5N1 influenza virus, the highly pathogenic virus, when there were two different labs that genetically um, engineered the H5N1 influenza virus, the highly pathogenic virus, that killed a lot of you killed most of the humans that were infected but never transmitted from human to humans but never transmitted from human to humans killed most of the humans that were infected but never transmitted from human to humans and then they engineered these viruses and then they engineered these viruses that they showed in ferrets could trans transmit from uh, from uh, from ferrets to ferrets which is oftentimes a good model for 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 transmission among humans for transmission among humans for transmission among humans however it has not been able to continue through human transmission in other words it has not developed the ability to go from person to person to person to person and we're hoping that it doesn't obtain the ability to be easily transmitted. I think there were two scientific studies that were embargoed for six months or so because from being published because nobody knew the risks associated with this. And so that's just a clarification yeah, yeah, right. of an example of, mm -hmm. of, uh, of uh, what we mean by the gain of function. I think that example is really important because we as a scientific community don't know what we're doing. We as a scientific community don't know what we're doing. So it's really important because we as a scientific community don't know what we're doing, don't know what we're doing, don't know what we're doing. So it's really important to... It's true, I know. Yeah, there was recently the formation of the Cambridge Working Group. Yeah. Marcel Salate is part of that, and uh, they gathered together a whole range of scientists to figure out what might we do, because we really don't know whether labs should work on this and, and how and to what extent government authorities should step in and mandate that this work shouldn't be, be done, because it is absolutely clear that it's very dangerous work. It is absolutely clear that it's very dangerous work. Um, so they're clearly uncertainties. There's a long history, of, and, and the rationale's pretty simple. If you can identify a specific part, or say a gene in an organism that is responsible for disease, yeah. then you actually have a target that sure. you can aim for therapeutics. Okay? Sure. And so the classical experiments, and this goes way back, is, is as long as we've had molecular biology or could do inbreeding of some sort, is to just take a genome and swap genes in one at a time, is to just take a genome and swap genes in one at a time, swap genes in one at a time, and see which ones yeah. give you the phenotype of disease. And that's how we identified a lot of these virulence factors. And that's what's led to a lot of the therapeutics. And so, you know, that's sort of the, I guess, the, the background in which these can be beneficial. The transmission experiments get you into another realm because they're really changing the biology of the virus. They're really changing the biology of the virus. They're really changing the biology of the virus in one or of an organism. In one case, you're just asking, we know we have a bug that has that can cause a specific disease. Yeah. What part of it causes that disease? In this case, we're trying to confer a new phenotype. In this case, we're trying to confer a new phenotype. So my, my take on it was perhaps slightly different, and um, well, maybe not. Um, in that those experiments were really asking the question, is it possible for this virus, which occurs in nature, to 
to actually become one that transmits between mm -hmm. individuals. Uh, nature does these experiments on a routine basis, on a daily basis, a thousand times a day probably within us. And so in essence, what these scientists, those two groups were asking was, can you do that? Or is it even practically possible for this virus to evolve to that state? That's really important information to have. Mm -hmm. And without that information, we won't be preparing appropriately for that. The embargo was actually motivated more from a sense of, can you provide this information now to certain bad mm -hmm. actors who will mm -hmm. then engineer this virus to do things that it shouldn't be doing? Right. Can you provide this information now to certain bad mm -hmm. actors who will mm -hmm. then engineer this virus to do things that it shouldn't be doing? Who will mm -hmm. then engineer this virus to do things that it shouldn't be doing? Right. right and so right. those experiments were already done. They were approved experiments. People went through, but done in very safe settings with very highly reputed groups. So there was really nothing wrong with the experiments themselves. It was really how the knowledge would be used by bad actors. It was really how the knowledge would be used by bad actors. During World War I, hundreds of thousands of people were killed or maimed by chemical weapons. After the war had finally ended, it seemed certain that this would be the future of warfare. But those who had seen the horrors wrought by chemical weapons worked hard to prevent their future use, destroying 97% of the world's stockpile. As a result, the world was made a safer place with the freedom to follow other pursuits. Chemical warfare was a frightening new idea, even at its inception. But not all ideas appear sinister at first glance. Wartime technologies are often extensions of peaceful technology that already exists. This is an example of what is commonly called dual use. When new technologies are developed, we consider the many ways we intend to use them. But it is more important to consider the ways that others might use them, or even misuse them. Over the last 30 years, Genetically modified viruses have successfully been used within contained laboratories. Soon, they could be used as a common therapy to treat cancer and a wide range of diseases. Genetically modified viruses are normal viruses that have had extra DNA added to them. This allows them to do things they could not have done before. Until today, Scientists have not intentionally released genetically modified viruses into the environment, barring several tightly controlled exceptions. The problem with any deliberate release is that, in many cases, it is difficult to control where the viruses will end up. We know of thousands of natural plant viruses, but none are known that can edit a plant's chromosomes. However, man-made viruses can be created to edit chromosomes across species. A new program called Insect Allies aims to use this kind of gene editing technology to help farmers and communities protect their crops. Until now, this technology has only been used indoors, but the military agency funding this program is interested in releasing it outside. While their idea is not new, it has never been done before. Farmers spend a lot of time worrying about how to protect the health of their crops from hazards. With insect allies, 
armies of insects would be infected with man-made viruses that are designed to directly target their crops. These viruses would be used to strengthen the plants against a wide selection of hazards. As a result, the main focus of this project is on viral dispersal. The insect allies themselves would only serve as viral vectors. For this plan to succeed, scientists would need to be prepared for anything. When the alarm sounds, they would need to quickly infect insects with the correct virus, transport them to farmers and release them. The insects would then be able to distribute their infections to crops. To be useful in any capacity, all of this would require global infrastructure. It would need warehouses designed to house insects year-round and staff to breed and maintain them. These insects would also require safeguards that would prevent them living and breeding beyond their one-time use. Without these kill switches, there would be a risk of the virus mutating and spreading, as pathogens tend to do. Unfortunately, it is still unclear how the spread of a genetically modified virus would be controlled. Should we be worried? The designers of the Insect Allies program claim that they can greatly assist farmers in protecting their crops, much to everyone's benefit. However, this kind of technology can easily be used to sabotage and control access to resources on a local or global scale. Right now, scientists are hard at work to safely develop insect allies. They are using multitudes of kill switches to prevent unintended outbreaks. But is this enough? With the appropriate resources, it would be easy for anyone to turn off these safeguards and cause a deliberate outbreak. This would create a new and highly targetable form of biological weapon, one that is undetectable and untraceable. It can be hard to predict the future. Today's technologies can become tomorrow's weapons. So, knowing all of this, do we really want to go viral? And what can we do to control its possible use? Scientists are raising the alarm over a Defense Department research program that aims to use bugs to protect crops. The program in question is called Insect Allies, and it would look to enlist aphids, leafhoppers, and whiteflies to transmit genetically engineered viruses to crops. Those viruses could activate or deactivate parts of plants' genetic code, helping to fight diseases or resist droughts. But a group of scientists say the technology, and specifically the use of bugs to disperse it, could be easily weaponized. In a paper in the journal Science, the scientists argue if the program were benevolent, it could use spraying equipment to distribute the viruses instead of bugs. The program's manager told the Washington Post those fears were unfounded and that the program is focusing on delivering positive traits to plants. Either way, the Post points out, it's normal for DARPA projects to go nowhere. So the whole debate may be moot.
you stimulate all the muscles individually. Individually. So the, the beetle ha actually has no control over what it's doing. Yeah. So you basically make it into a, a, a robot, actually. Like a robot. Could you tell us what, what, what you do here? And we use this system to detect the, the leg motion. So, so we can put some marker on, small marker on the leg. And so this is, this is the beetle that, that you're working with? Yes. You can see the many wires, right? And, uh, my student at the town finder, he's very good at the implantation and working on this, uh, leg motion control, actually. And he knows, uh, uh, he knows about the location of the leg muscles very well. Can you tell me a bit what, what you're going to do? Uh, basically, I will press... Uh, this, uh, there are two buttons. Uh -huh. One can change the working gate. The other one is I can change the step frequency. That means how fast the leg moves. Yeah, yeah. and these LED lights, they correspond each to a muscle. Yes, so in total eight muscles. Yeah, okay. okay. Let's so, see. So the step frequency is 0 0.125 Hz. So it's tripod. So it's very slow now. And so now it's alternating its left yes, and right. Alternating. So if I want to increase the step frequency, I need to press this button. Uh -huh. So that if I press once, so it's faster now. Now it's 0 0.25 hertz. <laughs> so amazing that you just press a button and the beetle starts walking. Mm -hmm. It's, I, I don't know, it seems almost unreal. Uh, that you can that you can kind of achieve this in a in a living creature. If I press one more time, uh -huh. 0 .2, 0 0.5 hertz, so it's faster. Then that's <laughs> this is really amazing. One hertz. <coughs> if I want to change to galloping, I press this button, so it will change to galloping. So yes, it's galloping. And this is when it runs faster, basically. Yeah, it, the step frequency is one hertz. Uh-huh. Now it's two hertz. Wow. Yeah. It struggles itself, but it still obeys the stimulation signals. Uh-huh. And do you think, is he struggling <laughs> to kind of stop these stimulation signals? Uh, yes, I think so. But still it obeys. Yeah? Yeah, very clearly. And this just keeps on working like this? Oh, uh, yes. It doesn't get used to it or something? It doesn't... No, no, no. I stimulate even you know, like for more than half an hour, so it's still like this. We stimulate more than seven days, more than one week. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. And it keeps working. Yes, yes. You're putting in electrical signals in, in, into the beetle now, mm -hmm. but is it using up its own uh, yeah, energy source, basically? Is it using the food that it eats to drive the muscles, or mm -hmm. are the muscles driven by the electricity? Uh, yes, the food. So you have to feed it yeah. to be able to yes, keep on doing yes, this. Yes, yes. Looking at this thing, it's it's... Unbelievable, actually, that, that humans can, uh, you know, take over control over, basically, over the willpower of this insect because the muscles are being driven by the insect itself. I mean, it has to feed it, it has to eat to be able to move the muscles. And all that they are doing is putting a bit of electrical stimulation into the muscles and they can control it to a degree that's amazing if you think about it. These may just be the first stages of this, but if you think about where this could go, this is really incredible. And how, how long would a beetle like this live? The, the, the natural, the regular beetles uh, survive for three months to six months. Even after the implantation, beetle can survive for several months. Uh -huh. We have never seen the beetle die right after the stimulation. So it doesn't, it, 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 it doesn't really hurt? No. All right, all I gotta do is blow on its back. <laughs> <laughs> 
to make its wings go. And then I can control it with this controller by pressing a button and moving it to a side. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Hey, it worked. It went right. Can I try again? Als ik dan naar rechts druk, dan gaat hij naar rechts. En het werkt. I think the most fascinating thing that I've learned over these past few days is that technology and nature are creeping more and more together and that we might be heading towards a future where technology and nature might become indistinguishable. Dual-use research is a research that's designed for the benefit of our society. However, there may be techniques in which there's an opportunity for misuse. I believe that uh, biotechnology is perhaps our greatest tool in trying to find ways to counter disease. It's a dual-edged sword, and it's perhaps our greatest challenge because the very same uh, techniques that uh, would allow us to produce innovative countermeasures also uh, provide opportunities for someone to use them in a bad way. There have been a number of experiments that have produced unexpected results that if technology fell into the hands of someone who wanted to do harm, and had the opportunity to do so, it could be quite devastating. Well, dual use in the scientific sense is taking legitimate research and the results and product of that research and using it or finding that there are other ways to use it that are more harmful uh, to humankind than what it was initially designed to do. I think it is a real threat uh, it is potential, but it's also real. It is not as apparent in many cases, and it is immediately apparent in other cases. I think there are certain things that can be done to minimize the risks, but there's always going to be the potential for negative purposes. Oh, I'm sure the threat is real, because, I mean, if you can have biologicals that can cause harm to people, there's always going to be a threat that somebody will use it improperly. It's a very broad category. Uh, one could easily envision how almost any research, no matter how seemingly unrelated to doing harm, a clever mind could potentially turn that around. A piece of knowledge that might come out of a laboratory today is seemingly without harm whatsoever. But when put into a series of other pieces of information could be devastating. In the case of nuclear physics, there was an iconic experience, the mushroom cloud, that made it clear to nuclear physicists that their work had security implications. There has been no comparable iconic experience for life scientists.
the Biological Weapons Anti-Terrorism Act of 1989, was enacted into law May 22, 1990. It provided for the implementation of the Biological Weapons Convention as well as criminal penalties for violation of its provisions. This Biological Weapons Anti-Terrorism Act was drafted by University of Illinois international law professor Francis Boyle. The act broadly defined several terms related to biological warfare. Those terms were vector, toxin, biological agent, and delivery system. The act defined biological agent as any microorganism, virus, infectious substance, or biological product that may be engineered as a result of biotechnology or any naturally occurring or bioengineered component of any such microorganism, virus, infectious substance, or biological product capable of causing death, disease, or other biological malfunction in a human, an animal, a plant, or another living organism, deterioration of food, water, equipment, supplies, or materials of any kind, or deleterious alteration of the environment. These exact words can be found in the U.S. Code, and for more information on that, you can see my first documentary called Lethal Injection, The Story of Vaccination. Previous United States interpretation of the Biological Weapons Convention ban on biological agents was in line with the BWATA definition. However, the United States now maintains that Article 1 of the Biological Weapons Convention, which explicitly bans bioweapons, does not apply to non-lethal biological agents. According to the Federation of American Scientists, current U.S. work on non-lethal agents greatly exceeds limitations set forth in the Biological Weapons Convention. The act made it illegal to buy, sell, or manufacture biological agents for use as a weapon. With passage of this act, it became known as Public Law 101-298 upon its passage and signing, and provided for criminal penalties for those who violated its provisions. Just one problem. The act specifically exempted what is called peaceful or defensive biological weapons research. In other words, the most deadly of viruses can be trafficked and studied, recreated and genetically altered to be even worse if the research is labeled as peaceful or defensive, making the provisions of this act almost impossible to enforce, especially when it is the National Institutes of Health that are funding most of these defensive or peaceful biological weapons research, which they call as basic research. As we'll find out, there is no difference whatsoever between basic or so-called legitimate peaceful research and biological weapons research. They are one in the same. The act dictated sentencing for violators and stated that whoever knowingly develops, produces, stockpiles, transfers, acquires, retains, or possesses any biological agent toxin, or delivery system for use as a weapon or knowingly assists a foreign state or any other organization to do so shall be fined under this title or in prison for life or any term of years or both. The act also provides that if a quantity of biological agent or toxin appeared to have no peaceful purpose, it could be seized and subsequently destroyed. 
In addition, passage of the act made violation of its provisions a federal crime. And so we can possibly understand the intent behind these so-called scientists who are conducting gain-of-function research on what otherwise would be called a biological weapon, why they are defending their actions. In other words, the terms peaceful and defensive are being used as an excuse to create the worst kind of biological weapons as a sort of workaround for this biological weapons act, to avoid its provisions through dual-use research, and call them as basic or legitimate research. Again, there is no difference between basic, legitimate research, and biological weapons creation. And this fact will be shown in great detail as we proceed. Francis Boyle, the author of this Biological Weapons Act, had this to say about COVID-19. I think I found the uh, smoking gun here. There was a uh, recent scientific study published in Antiviral Research, 10 February 2020, by three scientists from France and one from Montreal, who did a uh, genetic analysis of the uh, Wuhan coronavirus. And they said, quote, it may provide a gain of function of the 219 coronavirus for efficient spreading in the human population compared to other viruses. Let me repeat that. May provide a gain of function to the 2019 coronavirus for efficient spreading in the human population compared to other uh, lineage coronaviruses. Gate, what that, that's uh, the smoking gun for a uh, biologic, offensive biological warfare uh, agent. Gain of function properties is uh, a tip off. It's only useful for offensive biological warfare uh, uh, activity. And it is typically conducted in either a, uh, it's so dangerous, in either a BSL-4 or a BSL-3 facility. And there in Wuhan, you have the only uh, BSL-4 facility in uh, China. So I I think it's clear it, it came out of this lab. Gain of function, uh, it's uh, means it's DNA genetically engineered to be more lethal and more effect, uh, uh, more infectious. Gain of function means it's DNA genetically engineered to be more lethal and more infectious. Clearly what, what we're seeing now with uh, this uh, coronavirus, uh, it, it is basically SARS which is already a weaponized version of, uh, of a coronavirus, SARS, which is already a weaponized version of, uh, of a coronavirus that has leaked out of that laboratory at least twice before, the weaponized version of, uh, of a coronavirus that has leaked out of that laboratory at least twice before. And then it is given gain-of-function properties, which basically means it can travel by air for at least uh, six feet. And is is more lethal. Second, we have uh, an article here from uh, the <clears throat> NatMed, 
15, uh, 2015, December 21, SARS-like cluster of circulating bacronuses show potential for human emergence. This was at the uh, University of North Carolina They ha- in Chapel Hill. They have a biosafety lab level three there, and I previously condemned them for using gain-of-function work on MERS, for using gain-of-function work on MERS. And I previously condemned them for using gain-of-function work on MERS, which is the Middle East Respiratory Syndrome. It is like SARS, only more dangerous. It has uh, a 33% lethality rate. And they were doing gain-of-function work there to, to make it even more lethal. And they were doing gain-of-function work there to, to make it even more lethal. Well, it turns out, if you read the uh, the article, they admit that they were doing this with uh, with SARS, that they were giving it a gain-of-function activity. They admit that they were doing this with, uh, with SARS, that they were giving it a gain-of-function activity. And it turns out part of their team was a researcher from China, Zheng Li, Li Shi, key laboratory of special pathogens and biosafety, Wuhan Institute of Virology, Chinese Academy of Sciences. And they gave a grant to the University of North Carolina to get their scientists in on this extremely dangerous Nazi-type biological warfare work. So it appears that what happened was, instead of stealing this technology, China bought it. And they bought it from the lab there at the uh, University of North Carolina. They put their person in there. They took the technology and they brought it back to the Wuhan lab. It's right there. This fellow works for the Wuhan lab. And it also appears that the uh, North Carolina lab got uh, cells from Fort Detrick, which is the U.S. uh, major facility for the research, development, testing, stockpiling of biological weapons. Fort Detrick is the U.S. equivalent of Port and Down. So that's where they got some of their cells here. And they made it clear the work that they were doing was to increase the pathogenicity of original SARS by giving it this gain-of-function activity. As I started looking at this information, and as I started seeing that this is actually a chimeric version, something that was developed here in the United States in 2015, it was published in Nature magazine, that it was developed in the University of North Carolina Chapel Hills, where all the initial studies were done. The chimeric research, despite having a moratorium by the U.S. government to prevent any chimeric research, by the way, just so your audience understands, chimeric research basically means that they're taking a naturally occurring substance or virus in this case, and then mutating it, genetically modifying it, mutating it, genetically modifying it, changing the configuration morphologically to gain function. It's called a gain of function study or gain of function research. And that basically means that they're making something that already may have some potential to cause harm, making it more harmful, making it more virulent, making it more resistant, making it more harmful, making it more virulent, making it more resistant. And basically that's what I found that they took the SHC014 
strain of the coronavirus, the surface antigen component and brought in the backbone from the SARS coronavirus, put them together and then inserted HIV and MERS and then inserted HIV and MERS and then inserted HIV and MERS orthologs on top of it to make a more virulent, more detrimental virus. Now, the thing is that if I can, if I could, if I could jump in for just a moment here, because what I think you're talking about is uh, the moratorium that was placed and then $3.7 million from the National Institute of Health was transferred to China so they could continue this research, even though the moratorium, so they basically outsourced this, this research to China. So they basically outsourced this this research to China. Is this the same topic we're talking about here? This news is just breaking? Yes, this is exactly right. So it goes back to 2014, the US government decided based upon certain virologists at that time saying that, look, there's no justification for this kind of research. There's a potential to, for it to cause harm, cause a pandemic. So there's no justification for us to do this type of research. So the government passed a moratorium in 2014. Fauci approved budgets to be, monies to be uh, section for this type of research. So basically, and I'm getting really, every time I think about this, it gets me really flustered because I'm so angry that he basically broke the law. He he more than broke the law. He created this entire casket that we're seeing with the world shutdown was created by this initial aspect back in 2015. He broke the law. He went against government moratoriums. He took taxpayer money and he funded research that has now led to the COVID-19. In 2017, he was documented at Georgetown University saying that there will be a pandemic that this presidency will face, that this term will face. How did he know that in 2017 that something was gonna happen in 2018, 19, or 2020? There's no, you can't predict the market from three days from today, what's gonna happen. How did he know that there was gonna be a pandemic? He stated the president of this, this president will face a pandemic, the exact quotes, I don't want to say the exact words. You guys have the video footage. There is no question that there will be a challenge to the coming administration in the arena of infectious diseases, both chronic infectious diseases in the sense of already ongoing disease. And we have certainly a large burden of that. But also there will be a surprise outbreak. There will be a surprise outbreak. There will be a surprise outbreak. My point is that when somebody starts making these type of statements and then they were involved with the breaking of the law to fund the research that American taxpayers paid for, that then goes to Wuhan and now trying to create this diversion and say that it was China. God, I don't know whether it came from China or released in China, whether it was already released here. It's irrelevant. The complicity of what's going on right now, whether China, whether it was released in China or whether it was already here or however it happened, the U.S. system has condoned it, has jumped on it. They're opportunistic. They're shutting down the economy when they know, in fact, that there's no basis. Is Fauci directly responsible for this pandemic because he maneuvered the money? He, he maneuvered around the moratorium, kept this chimeric research going in China. Is he, is he directly responsible for not just the pandemic, but also the response that's killed the economy, put, what, 17 to 22 million people out of work? Is, is Fauci directly responsible? I'm going to say this. I think that I've seen some petitions going around. I know Dr. Shiva said that Fauci should be, should be fired. I think that's the nicest thing that could be done to Fauci. I think he should, he's, a, he has show, he's a criminal. He's broken the law. He's going against the government. I mean, that, that, to me, that seems like it's a traitorous thing to do when you, when you, the government has passed a regulation and he's at one of the highest 
levels in the NIH. He's, he's got a directorship at the NIH. And then he breaks the law. He breaks the moratorium and then funds research against something that could potentially cause harm throughout the entire world. And he's in collusion with, with the foreign government to do. I mean, I, I don't know. That's, that's a matter for attorneys to decide. But I'll tell you something. Fauci goes back to 1981. In 1981, he called HIV AIDS the gay disease, and he was the one who funded uh, the, the research behind a drug three years before it was even established that there was a real virus. So the, the virus was established in 1984. In 1981, he was pushing the agenda of a drug prophylactically to treat people for a condition that has now been seen to be related to lifestyle, nutritional status, all sorts of other things. He was pushing the agenda to push a drug that caused so much harm as a prophylactic, just to prevent HIV. Now, this goes back 1981. We're talking 39 years. This guy has a history of pushing an agenda. But now the president comes out and says there's a drug called hydroxychloroquine, which has been on the market for God knows 50, 60, 70 years, and another drug, Zithromax, which has been, it's a, it's a macrolid that's been around for at least, that, that class of drugs has been around for at least 70, 80 years. Maybe Zithromax, um, maybe, maybe Zithromax has been around for, I don't know, 20 years, whatever the case is. These are established drugs. They're safe drugs. Using them in combination, they're doctors that have shown at least 99% uh, efficacy. They've shown hundreds and hundreds of patients have treated. Nobody's died. Symptoms resolve within an hour, hour and a half to, to a day and a half, two days. Okay, so you've got this class. The president brings it out. And Fauci says, get this, Fauci says, unless there's some studies to show that, it should not be used. Yet he's promoting a vaccine that we have no idea what the hell that's going to do. And he's saying that's okay to use? I mean, if that does not show a conflict of interest, I don't know what does. People need to wake up and realize there is a massive criminal component to this. This entire world economy, the whole world economy shutting down, it comes back to one person, in my opinion, and that's Fauci. Now, there's other people that are involved with the charade, obviously, but Fauci is the person that they put up in the front, and Fauci is the one who had the ability to stop this. Fauci has told a friend of mine, Judy Mikowitz, who I was doing an interview with just about an hour earlier, she went to jail and spent five years. She was threatened by, by Fauci uh, 10 years ago when she came out to say that the viral studies and the research that she had done, and she was in charge of doing the research in Ebola to make it more virulent, to make it more virulent. She was in charge of doing the research in Ebola to make it more virulent. The gain of function studies on Ebola, she was responsible for that. When she realized the stuff that she had developed and the stuff that she was researching was being used for nefarious purposes and she was going to be a whistleblower, her career was threatened and more, her life was threatened. She refused to back down. She went forward and guess what they did? They framed her and they put her in jail for five years. She's got a book that came out today, uh, I believe called, uh, it's called Plague Something. It just came out today. I'm telling you right now, Fauci, it can all be traced back to Fauci, but Fauci is just one of the players. There's other people, and you can start looking at what the agenda is. It's wide open. Anybody can go in and do their own internet search. They just need to open their eyes, they need to open up their mind, and they need to be married to no decision or outcome. Just look at it for yourselves, people. You've got your brains. Use your own brain. Come up with your own sequence of events, how it happened. Do the research, and you will if you're following a logical sequential thought pattern, you'll come to the same conclusion. There's, there's no way that you can come up to any other conclusion. All roads lead back to the same place. So let's read from this smoking gun report out of nature medicine. 
published November 9th, 2015, a SARS-like cluster of circulating back coronavirus shows potential for human emergence. Now, understand that this type of dual-use or gain-of-function research is all based on potential. The potential to make something much worse, much more virulent, much more contagious, and much more deadly. And so the word potential here is the main draw for such types of research. In the abstract, we read, The emergence of severe acute respiratory syndrome coronavirus, or SARS-CoV, and Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, or MERS-CoV, underscores the threat of cross-species transmission events leading to outbreaks in humans. Here we examine the disease potential of a SARS-like virus, SHC014-CoV, which is currently circulating in Chinese horseshoe bat populations. Using the SARS-CoV reverse genetics system, we generated and characterized a chimeric virus, expressing the spike of bat coronavirus, shc 14 and a mouse-adapted SARS-CoV backbone. The results indicate that group 2B viruses encoding the SHC014 spike in a wild-type backbone can efficiently use multiple orthologs of the SARS receptor human angiotensin-converting enzyme 2, or ACE2, replicate efficiently in primary human airway cells and achieve in vitro titers equivalent to epidemic strains of SARS-CoV. Now, in case you're not familiar with the symptoms, that is basically a description of the current SARS-2 coronavirus, or COVID-19, affecting the lungs and many other organs. And that is based on the added function or gain-of-function research here described where the spike or communication device, if you will, is able to connect to these cells through the ACE2 receptor. Additionally, in vivo experiments demonstrate replication of the chimeric virus in mouse lung with notable pathogenesis. Evaluation of available SARS-based immune therapeutic and prophylactic modalities revealed poor efficacy. Both monoclonal antibody and vaccine approaches failed to neutralize and protect from infection with COVs using the novel spike protein. I say again, both monoclonal antibody and vaccines failed to neutralize and protect from infection using this particular novel or unique spike protein, one that does not happen in nature. On the basis of these findings, we synthetically re-derived an infectious full-length SHC014 recombinant virus and demonstrate robust viral replication both in vitro and in vivo. Our work suggests a potential risk of SARS-CoV reemergence from viruses currently circulating in bat populations. Now, to put that in layman's terms, we took bat coronavirus, which likely cannot transmit to humans and certainly cannot be transmitted from human to human, 
and we added or put a new function, a gain of function, which is this receptor coming from a human or HIV virus. This, in other words, is what we're calling SARS-2. As we go further into the study, we find, quote, together the results demonstrate that broadly neutralizing antibodies against SARS-CoV may only have marginal efficacy against emergent SARS-like COV strains such as SHC014. Again, speaking to the ineffectiveness of vaccine treatments. To evaluate the efficacy of existing vaccines against infection with this strain, we vaccinated aged mice with double inactivated whole SARS-CoV, or DIV. Previous work showed that DIV could neutralize and protect young mice from challenge with a homologous virus. However, the vaccine failed to protect aged animals in which augmented immune pathology was also observed indicating the possibility of the animals being harmed because of the vaccination. Here we found that DIV did not provide protection from challenge with this strain with regards to weight loss or viral titer. Consistent with a previous report with other heterologous group COVs, Serum from DIV-vaccinated aged mice also failed to neutralize this strain. Notably, DIV vaccination resulted in robust immune pathology and eosinophilia. Together, these results confirm that the DIV vaccine would not be protective against infection with SHC014 and could possibly augment disease in the aged vaccinated group. We can also look at just a few of the various reports that list the unbelievable amount of accidents that happen in these high-level labs. For instance, this report in Science, Mounting Lab Accidents Raise SARS Fears. This in April of 2004. And so this gain-of-function type of research has obviously been going on much longer than we realize. Reported in The Scientist, November 16th, 2015, we read that the lab-made coronavirus triggers debate. The creation of a chimeric SARS-like virus has scientists discussing the risks of -of gain-of-function research. Now note that since COVID-19 has come out, this particular article has become very popular, with good reason. In the effort to calm the public, this update was added March 11th, 2020. On social media and news outlets, a theory has circulated that the coronavirus at the root of the COVID-19 outbreak originated in a research lab. Scientists say there is no evidence that the SARS-CoV-2 virus escaped from a lab. And yet, by the end of this presentation, you will have no doubt that this and most other viruses have been lab-grown. Ralph Barrick, an infectious disease researcher at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill last week, November 9th, published a study on his team's efforts to engineer a virus with the surface protein of the SHC014 coronavirus found in horseshoe bats in China and the backbone of one that causes human-like severe acute respiratory syndrome, or SARS, in mice. 
The hybrid virus could infect human airway cells and cause disease in mice, according to the team's results, which were published in Nature Medicine. The results demonstrate the ability of the SHC014 surface protein to bind and infect human cells. Validating concerns that this virus or other coronaviruses found in bat species may be capable of making the leap to people without first evolving in an intermediate host, Nature reported. They also reignite a debate about whether that information justifies the risk of such work, known as gain-of-function research. If the new virus escaped, nobody could predict the trajectory. Simon Wayne Hobson, a virologist at the Pasteur Institute in Paris, told Nature. In October 2013, the U.S. government put a stop to all federal funding for gain-of-function studies, with particular concern rising about influenza, SARS, and Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, or MERS. NIH, the National Institutes of Health, has funded such studies because they help define the fundamental nature of human-pathogen interactions, enable the assessment of the pandemic potential of emerging infectious agents, and inform public health and preparedness efforts. NIH Director Francis Collins said in a statement at the time, These studies, however, also entail biosafety and biosecurity risks, which need to be understood better. Barrick's study on the SHC014 chimeric coronavirus began before the moratorium was announced, and the NIH allowed it to proceed during a review process. So to be clear, a moratorium on this type of research was declared, and the NIH allowed this SARS research to continue, despite that moratorium. During the review process, which eventually led to the conclusion that the work did not fall under the new restrictions, Barrick told Nature. But some researchers, like Wayne Hobson, disagree with that decision. The debate comes down to how informative the results are. The only impact of this work is the creation in a lab of a new non-natural risk. Richard E. Bright, a molecular biologist and biodefense expert at Rutgers University, told Nature, quote, The results move this virus from a candidate emerging pathogen to a clear and present danger. In other words, when man interferes with nature, it becomes a present danger instead of something that can likely never happen. Peter Daszak, president of the EcoHealth Alliance, which samples viruses from animals and people in emerging diseases hotspots across the globe, told Nature. The final piece of uh, evidence here is uh, Archive of uh, Virology 2010. And this is research done with the Australian Animal Health Laboratory. And again, the Wuhan Institute of Virology, where they DNA genetically engineered SARS and HIV. They DNA genetically engineered SARS and HIV, okay, to, to make a weapon, okay, to, to make a weapon. And uh, they got a grant here from the Chinese Ministry of Science, Technology, Etc. to do this. So once again, they they brought the, bought the technology. They didn't steal it back to 
Wuhan. And so my reading of these articles, basically, these uh, three articles, is that they took the technology from this death factory at North Carolina. They took the technology from this uh, Australian research project. They brought it back to the Wuhan BSL-4 and tried to genetically engineer it all together as a sort of a turbocharged biological warfare weapon that would, would consist with, of SARS, which is already a uh, weaponized coronavirus, SARS, which is already a uh, weaponized coronavirus, weaponized coronavirus, gain-of-function properties, and HIV. Gain-of-function properties and HIV. And as you know, those Indian scientists already did an analysis of the coronavirus, and, and it was published online. I read it. And HIV was clearly in there. And HIV was clearly in there. HIV was clearly in there. So I saw the pictures. So that, I think, is what we are dealing with here. Uh, a, a, we've never seen, at least released in the public, a biological warfare agent this dangerous, except the uh, Amerithrax that was uh, in October 2001 after the 9-11-2001 terrorist attacks. That was super weapons grade anthrax, um, 100 grams of spore. It too traveled in the air. It seemed to be based on uh, nanotechnology. And we hadn't seen any. And at the time, I publicly stated it came out of the U.S. Biological Warfare Weapons Program. It came out of the U.S. Biological Warfare Weapons Program. At the time, I publicly stated it came out of the U.S. Biological Warfare Weapons Program and probably Fort Detrick, which was later uh, confirmed. I said that about the uh, first week in November. Even I was even on the BBC saying that. And then an order was given to silence me. I was blackballed off all mainstream news media in the United States, Britain, Europe, you name it. So despite the fact my viewpoints are all over the world, no mainstream news media will touch me. So um, the Amerithrax, of course, was extremely dangerous, but not as infectious as what we're seeing here. So in a nutshell, that's where I see it as of today. So those experiments were already done. They were approved experiments. People went through, but done in very safe settings with very highly reputed groups. So there was really nothing wrong with the experiments themselves. It was really how the knowledge would be used by bad actors. Yeah, but you I think but it's gone yeah. beyond that now because yeah. I think you're a signatory of the Cambridge. Right, so I signed the Cambridge Working Group document after some thought. I do feel we have to be very cautious when you start to say scientists shouldn't do things because that way is a very slippery slope. Cambridge Work Group is actually saying there should be a moratorium on it and while we figure out what's going on, like there was for recombinant DNA in the 70s. And it's only on some pathogens, so SARS and MERS and a few of the flu strains. So SARS and MERS and a few of the flu strains. And it's only on some pathogens, so SARS and MERS and a few of the flu strains. Um, to me, I think that the sort of question you're talking about is what evolution can do, what could come up, you have to ask yourself, do you need to do this on a virus which is horrendously risky for humans? 
So if you're asking general principles, and that's what's the great thing about so much of this DNA technology, we can ask questions of a whole range of things that either aren't for us or they're not that nasty. They're talking here about particularly nasty things. That if they got loose, catastrophe could be visited on us. That if they got loose, catastrophe could be visited on us. They're talking here about particularly nasty things. That if they got loose, catastrophe could be visited on us. So you have to ask, why was it necessary to do those experiments in those particular pathogens? What are we getting out of studying those? And the justification there has been, well, something to do with surveillance, not therapeutics development, surveillance, that five mutations to mammalian transmissibility was the sort of answer they were giving, and it's these five mutations. So you've got to keep an eye out for those, and if you see three of them in nature, we're really close to a disaster. That's the sort of logic. And to me, as an evolutionary biologist, I think, well, that's one pathway to mammalian <laughs> transmissibility, but in, and in ferrets, but there's going to be many other pathways. That's right. So the predictive power of identifying a few mutations strikes me as being very low. It's a, we don't know. I mean, that might be the only route. It might be predictive, but we don't know that. I'd like to see that in other um, systems, safer systems first. How good is it as a way of developing surveillance systems to generate horrendous viruses and then go looking for elements of those in nature? To generate horrendous viruses and then go looking for elements of those in nature? Uh, to me, that's a completely... And so given that we don't know if that works and the risk if these things get out, and we know very many labs that have released pathogens we didn't want to lose, and we know very many labs that have released pathogens we didn't want to lose, and the risk if these things get out, and we know very many labs that have released pathogens we didn't want to lose. That's why I signed the thing in the end. It seemed so to be very, very, very uncertain gains. Sorry. Yeah, so totally concur with that, that rationale. It makes perfect sense. The virtue, or but perhaps the value of getting that information, is that we now know for a fact that there is a path in ferrets mm -hmm. that will lead to that. Not having done or not having access to the natural experiment, which actually would be devastating should that occur, um, we would not be able to ever know that information. And I should, so in this way, we're yeah. at, at least able to know for a fact oh, I take that, I that take, this is possible. Yeah, I do take and that. if it is possible, then we need to be watching out for it. I do take that point. And I think, actually, Otto and I were over cocktails on the weekend discussing <laughs> this very issue. And I, I think, well, Otto, not put words in his, his mouth, was arguing that we did learn some interesting biology from that process. We did learn some interesting biology from that process. It's really important because we as a scientific community don't know what we're doing, don't know what we're doing, don't know what we're doing. We did learn some interesting biology from that process and that, that might help us with risk evaluation. Absolutely. Yeah, so, so, yes, and so I'm completely, so I must say, I am completely undecided on this topic. I think it's, I think I'm slightly, I might be slightly convinced by your argument, but I do think that it's very interesting in the case of H. 5N1 that there were so there were essentially two sets of things that needed to happen. One was that you needed to change the the epitope affinity of the mm -hmm. virus, and then the other thing was that you needed to change the temperature range of um, of the polymerase. And and I think uh, and and so maybe the trivial result was that you changed those two things and you got gain of function. You changed those two things and you got gain of function and you got gain of function. But I do think that one of the interesting corollaries is that with the change of, of temperature affinity, um, uh, that's what allowed the, the virus to, to replicate high up in the respiratory tract of, of mammals instead of deep down in the lungs where the temperature is the same as the gut of, mm. of birds. Uh, but interesting biology is that then 
at least potentially, you could see that a lot of the uh, virulence is really associated with the replication very deep in the lungs. And so it might be that that there's kind of a trade-off or, or conflict that you can get transmissible, transmissible viruses, but they like it to be much less virulent just mm. be, because the function of transmitting is associated with being up here in a, in a, um, no, in a low temperature, less pathogenic environment. So, yeah. so I do think there was some interesting yeah. So the slippery slope then becomes every experiment you do on influenza has the potential to mm -hmm. actually go down that same path, create something mm -hmm. that has increased transmissibility if that's what you're testing for. Many of those experiments actually don't test for that. So any experiment you do with any pathogen has the potential to make it more or less virulent. And we know from, uh, for example, studies that have um, routinely introduced antimicrobial resistance into pathogens, routinely introduced antimicrobial resistance into pathogens, routinely introduced antimicrobial resistance into pathogens. Some of them are, are drugs that for which if an, an organism such as TB becomes resistant now to eight different drugs, there are no treatments for. There are no treatments for. There are no treatments for. How do you deal with that? And in fact, the importance of, uh, I think, this sort of, the, the sense of gain-of-function experiments onto specific lipats means that you'd have to stop experimenting on pretty much anything. Yes. It's very difficult to predict what that gain-of-function yeah, no, might be. I, I agree on that. I, there is obviously a very strong argument for gain-of-function experiments. I've got no issue with that. The question is whether we should do it we were trying to enhance certain types of function, in this case, mammalian transmissibility. We were trying to enhance certain types of function, in this case, mammalian transmissibility, in pathogens that we're genuinely very scared about. We have every reason to be very scared. And I think this discussion is an example of why we need a moratorium here. We need to pause to think, what sort of questions are we really going to get good things out of for taking these risks? And that has to be put up against the possibility these things get out. And you can measure the rate at which people lose pathogens. I mean, the pathogens get out of labs, and it's a fine, it's not zero. You can measure the rate at which people lose pathogens. I mean, the pathogens get out of labs, and the pathogens get out of labs, and the pathogens get out of labs, and it's a fine, it's not zero. Yeah. And this is it. Yeah. And this is, I mean, this is clearly a discussion that's going to be yeah. continuing yeah. in the scientific community for, for some time to come. And, and I think I would really encourage more, uh, more discussion about this, in fact, on the forums to get some more perspective from the people that are taking this class in terms of what does the, what does the community that benefits from this science really get from the kinds of work that, that people like us are trying to do. I can't think of a moment bigger than this one. I've likened this as the moment for biology akin to the moment when fissile nuclear material was figured out by physics and offered both a way to solve the problems of the universe and nuclear weapons. These papers really represent a seminal moment in life sciences. Uh, we now really have been confronted with examples of where the science itself, which is very important in moving forward for the public's health, also pose a potential risk for 
nefarious actions or in even uh, those situations where this virus might escape from a laboratory. So we're really at a point for the first time of trying to balance uh, the need to know versus the need to protect. There is a need for dual-use research. That's the, that's the point for establishing of this committee, the NSABB. And the idea there is that we find some way to balance public health interests, freedom of speech, and freedom to pursue research as scientists with the public good and public concerns about the safety and security of research. We believe that it would be uh, uh, not in the world's best interest to have all the detailed information come out. Now, having said that, we also have uh, made a very strong call for an international discussion about where do we go forward. So the NSAVB never saw itself as being the final arbiter on this. Really, we're, I think you might say, the first court of appeals, and we know we need uh, uh, more guidance from all the life sciences around the world to, to move to the next step. I think we can learn a great deal about transmission of influenza virus through the air from this work. This is a question we know very little about. There are very, very few systems in which to study it. And these are the first advances that we have uh, on studying the transmission in ferrets. So there's so many additional experiments that come from this. It would be a shame to suppress uh, the data from these, these experiments. One of the really disappointing uh, parts of this discussion to date has been that everyone seems to have their own set of facts. And in particular, for myself, coming from a public health background where I've been in the trenches, fighting disease, doing surveillance, stopping outbreaks, uh, I've watched a number of the life scientists who have made blanket statements about the public health utility of this kind of information or what we can do with it uh, as an argument for why it should be widely disseminated. And in the first instance, none of this holds water. And it doesn't mean that the work isn't important. It doesn't mean life sciences shouldn't move forward. But uh, there's been a lot of misunderstandings about what the real utility of this information is in protecting the public's health. I think we need to have an Asilomar-type moment where scientists meet and decide how to go forward. Unfortunately, since 9-11, we now have a lot of policy analysts who are participating in this debate, not scientists. And I think it's unfortunate in a way because this, the result of Asilomar, where there were largely scientists meeting, were the regulations that uh, applied to recombinant DNA. So in an ideal world, that's what I would like to happen. But as you know, it's not an ideal world. The mistake made at the Asilomar moment was that it was scientists talking to scientists. Very heated. It was not a, you know, happy little let's all hold hands and agree. And then saying to the public, okay, we've reached an agreement, you all should trust us. And the backlash from community to community all over the world was enormous. After you've pursued work, you've invested lots of resources in trying to get it done, and you've submitted for publication and be told that it can't be published. It would be far better to have discussions of this sort at the time that the work is first described. Everybody can be a Monday morning quarterback and say, we should have thought of this, we could have thought of this, and we actually did. We just didn't think that influenza was the one we had to worry about. But now we're where we're at. Those days are over with. We now realize we have to be very concerned about how we move forward. Now, in my view, I can't think of an experiment done by a legitimate uh, scientist seeking answers to a question that, that you wouldn't want to publish. I can think of very many experiments that a nefarious scientist would do and you wouldn't want to publish, and they wouldn't either. But legitimate experiments, in my view, are all publishable. The 
issues about publication and about conducting this research really need to be addressed by the scientific community at large with representatives from public health, with international representation. I think it's very important that this debate occurs now, and I think these papers have given us the opportunity to have this debate now. Welcome to NIH Nature Center. Um, my name is Sally Howard. I'm the Chief of Staff to uh, Secretary Kathleen Sebelius here at the United States Department of Health and Human Services. It's my distinct honor to uh, welcome everyone to this international consultative workshop on highly pathogenic avian influenza H5N1 viruses. The biomedical research mission of the department is carried out by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the Federal uh, Food Drug Administration, as well as the National Institutes of Health, the host of today's meeting. Our topic for the next two days um, highly pathogenic avian influenza is pertinent to the research and public health missions of the department, but as importantly, is an issue of major concern around the globe. Highly pathogenic avian influenza has long been recognized as a significant agricultural problem. It is widespread among poultry in parts of Asia and the Middle East, and to date has caused an estimated 20 billion U.S. in economic damage across the globe. More worrisome is the possibility that HPAI, H5N1, will become a major public health threat. We already know from experience that this virus is capable in some instances of jumping hosts and moving from avian species into humans, causing severe respiratory illness. This is thankfully a relatively rare event, but when this leap occurs, it can be quite lethal. Some 600 human cases have been reported since 2003, with a mortality rate of approximately 60%. Although currently H5N1 is not well adapted for sustained human-to-human -human transmission, recent studies underscore the growing concern that the virus may acquire this ability, the virus may acquire this ability, and thus the importance of understanding this virus and its potential to become a pandemic disease agent and its potential, 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 potential to become a pandemic disease agent. However, it has not been able to continue through human transmission. In other words, it has not developed the ability to go from person to person to person to person. And we're hoping that it doesn't obtain the ability to be easily transmitted. There are different approaches for studying the ways in which the H5N1 virus can spread, adapt to new hosts, or become more pathogenic. One approach is to engineer into the virus genetically based traits to engineer into the virus genetically based traits. One approach is to engineer into the virus genetically based traits that mimic those that might occur in nature. These so-called gain-of-function experiments are not without risks, however, and have generated much discussion over biosafety and biosecurity issues. I think we all remember about a year ago um, reading the New York Times article that talked about the doomsday virus. I think that uh, launched us off onto a very uh, vibrant discussion about uh, this type of research. The truth about the doomsday virus, as reported in the New York Times opinion section and editorial on March 3rd, 2012. Two months ago, we warned that a new bird flu virus modified in a laboratory to make it transmissible through the air among mammals 
could kill millions of people if it escaped confinement or was stolen by terrorists. Now, Ron Fauchier, the Dutch scientist who led the key research team, is saying that his findings, which remain confidential, were misconstrued by the press. He says that the virus did not spread easily and was not lethal when transmitted from one ferret to another by coughing or sneezing, and that it became highly lethal only when big doses were injected into the animal's windpipes. That is hard to square with his original assertions. Experts who read his original manuscript say it reported that the new virus spread through the air and remained as virulent as the natural virus, which has killed 60% of the humans it has infected. Dr. Fauchier's new claims are only the latest bizarre twist in a global health debate that badly needs an objective, independent arbiter. The public needs to know whether this virus is a potentially big killer, and if so, how it should be contained. It needs to know what details can be published without giving terrorists a recipe for a biological weapon. And it needs to know that a mechanism will be put in place to assess all the risks and benefits of such research before it is approved, not after a new virus has already been created. The debate became public after a federal advisory board, the National Science Advisory Board for Biosecurity, recommended that papers prepared by Dr. Fauchier's group and researchers doing similar work at the University of Wisconsin-Madison be published only after omitting details that might help terrorists. That drew charges of censorship from some scientists, and others warned that restricting the information would make it harder to track and combat an outbreak of a similar strain. The World Health Organization convened a closed meeting of 22 experts last month, which concluded that the research should eventually be published in full. The group was dominated by participants with a clear stake in publication, including the researchers who made the viruses. The journals that want to publish their papers in full and developing countries that want access to full details in exchange for having contributed the viruses that were studied. Now, this country's National Institutes of Health, which financed the research and has its own reputation on the line, is asking the Biosecurity Advisory Board to reconsider its call to redact details before publication. We welcome a new appraisal from a board that has already shown considerable independence. We hope it will look beyond the security and terrorism issues and voice its opinion on what safety precautions should be required to prevent the virus from escaping and whether the work should proceed at multiple labs or possibly be halted. These issues need to be resolved by experts who do not have institutional biases or turf to protect. The World Health Organization should be in the best position to oversee a response to what is a global problem. Its first effort was one-sided and disappointing, but it has pledged to convene further meetings with a much broader range of experts and interested parties. It must ensure that these forums are not rubber stamps for what the narrower special interest group just concluded. These are complicated issues and the stakes are enormous. Governments and scientists have a clear responsibility to get this judgment and future efforts right. 
Now, unfortunately, this forum we are watching currently, though the warnings of danger and the death of the entire population was made very clear by the participants there, this so-called public forum, which the public never really saw, was indeed merely a rubber stamp event. In other words, it meant nothing. There was no actual public opinion brought forth. What follows is a group of government bureaucrats, drug company representatives and salesmen, and other so-called scientists, including the aforementioned Ron Fauchier, who originally did these experiments that are being debated. These safety and security concerns are global in scope, and thus any path forward for this type of research must be developed through an international dialogue and hence the purpose and value of today's meeting. Here at the Department of Health and Human Services, we've had extensive discussion about the analytical framework that should govern our decision-making when considering HPAI, H5N1 gain-of-function research. The discussions over the next two days will provide important insights to consider as we finalize our approach to decisions about the type of research we should fund and can also inform your own considerations of these issues in your home countries. In light of that, it is especially gratifying to see the robust participation uh, at this meeting from countries around the globe, including those for whom H5N1 is an ongoing agricultural and public health concern. I know those from, uh, there are a number of people from Southeast Asia um, in attendance. We're glad to have you share your views about the value of the research, its potential risks, the risk to public health preparedness of not doing the research. Ah, the sociopath's favorite logical fallacy. It's somehow unethical not to mutate and recreate deadly viruses that could escape the lab accidentally or on purpose, thus killing the entire population of Earth, though it would likely never happen in nature. We're glad to have you share your views about the value of the research, its potential risks, the risk to public health preparedness of not doing the research, um, which again is the counter to the biosecurity risks of doing this research, and the principles that should guide any research in the future. Dr. Digraf is co-chair of the Inner Academy Council, past president of the Royal Netherlands Academy of Arts and Sciences, and director of Institute for Advanced Study at Princeton. And the subject matter gain-of-function research on highly pathogenic avian influenza H5N1 is a topic of special concern, of course, to scientists across the world, but also one which the scientific community in the Netherlands has given a lot of thought, since we had very active researchers working on this and understanding uh, the uh, agricultural and public health threats. It's also of interest because one, some of this work fits perfectly the characteristic of dual-use research of concern, a reference to important scientific work that can nonetheless yield information and technologies that in the wrong hand could be misused, is that in the wrong hand could be misused, yield information and technologies that in the wrong hand could be misused to cause great harm to the public health or global security. This dual-use question has been a topic of concern to the Royal Netherlands Academy of Arts and Sciences, which actually spearheaded the development of uh, both nationally and internationally, the development of a biosecurity code of conduct 
that emphasizes awareness raising, oversight and accountability among scientists. And these are themes that have great pertinence to our aims today as well. In charting a path forward, it's essential that scientists enter a, into a dialogue with those who have other perspectives, including security experts, safety experts, and the public at large. I expect that we will hear very diverse points of view, and that is a good thing. The organizers have made every effort to represent a balanced representation of the issues as possible. And it's important to emphasize there are no foregone conclusions in this workshop. All points of view are fair and will be taken into account by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and by all of us at this meeting in charting the best course forward. And certainly this issue is a prime example that I would say mot motivates uh, a coordinate global approach. In one sense, we're dealing with a very circumscribed topic, highly pathogenic avian influenza H5N1 virus. But in a larger sense, the subject of this meeting literally affects every individual in the world. Every citizen in every country has a stake in the research that will or will not go forward with respect to these highly pathogenic agents. This meeting is about advancing a global dialogue on the issues that directly and indirectly emanate from research with this highly pathogenic agent that has the character of dual use that Professor Dykgraaf referred to. We want this meeting to be a place where we can invite every point of view to be expressed openly, candidly, in a forthright manner, and respectfully. It's very important for us to keep in mind that our aim is not to reach a consensus amongst those here or amongst the panelists or in any uh, group that is represented uh, here. Our goal is to share and to hear individual points of view so that they can inform both the framework and the larger dialogue that surrounds these issues. In other words, your public opinions mean exactly jack shit at the end of this forum. After all, the agency that's funding these research projects is the same agency that will decide which projects to fund. And that's why many of you watching this have never heard anything about this topic or this forum, even as COVID-19, a man-made lab-escaped gain-of-function virus, a bad-to-worst-case scenario in this forum, grips us all. Our topic, of course, is centrally focused on the safety and responsible conduct of research. And the research program uh, in the United States government is focused particularly on the work of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases here at the NIH. And we are very privileged in opening our conversation over the course of these two days to be able to hear the perspective of the director of the NIAID, who in this audience needs no introduction. But it is for me a great pleasure and a source of privilege to be able to introduce to you the director of the NIAID, Dr. Tony Fauci. Thank you very much, Harvey. It's a great pleasure to be here. 
with you this morning. Uh, I want to take this opportunity, uh, as you see on this first slide, <clears throat> to first welcome you all. I know I see so many friends and colleagues in the room who have traveled a great distance to be here with us today to discuss this extraordinarily important topic, but also to give a brief overview, as Harvey said, uh, a considerable amount of the activity that goes on in this area from a research standpoint comes from the NIH and NIAID. As you know, we're part of the Department of Health and Human Services, as is the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, who also have a considerable amount of contributions, both from a public health surveillance as well as from a research standpoint in the topic for today, which is gain-of-function research on highly pathogenic avian influenza H5N1. Gain-of-function research, gain-of-function research, gain-of-function research on highly pathogenic avian influenza H5N1. So from the standpoint of research in general, uh, we at the NIH and the CDC have been involved in the study of influenza literally for decades and decades. I don't need to tell this audience, but I know there are those who are listening in who may not have the historical perspective is that seasonal influenza itself is an extraordinary threat to global health, resulting in approximately a half a million deaths per year worldwide. Every once in a while, unpredictably, we have a pandemic. Unpredictably, 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 we have a pandemic. History has shown us that pandemics occur and almost certainly will continue to occur unpredictably, unpredictably. On this slide, you see the history from the last century and this century of the now iconic pandemic influenza of 1918, which killed between 50 and 100 million people, a serious pandemic in 1957, again in 68, and then most recently in 2009, the first of the pandemics of the 21st century. Now, highly pathogenic avian influenza, as you've heard from Sally, uh, is widespread among poultry in parts of Asia and the Middle East. Infections of humans, i.e. jumping species, is rare, but when it occurs, it occurs and causes severe respiratory illness. Currently, this virus is not well adapted for sustained human-to-human -human transmission, but there is concern that has been going on now for approximately a decade. In fact, the first cases were in 1997, but since 2003, there has been considerable concern that the virus may ultimately acquire the ability to adapt itself better for human-to-human -human transmission. Again, Dr. Fauci supports the sociopathic logical fallacy that, because we don't know whether highly pathogenic H5N1 could mutate naturally to infect humans more easily, but we're pretty sure it won't, we must genetically engineer and mutate H5N1 virus today, now, as soon as possible, into an even more deadly, more contagious, unnatural virus. And while we're at it, let's make it resistant to all known drugs. And hey, why not make it airborne too? This is the now familiar map of the worldwide cases as of just a few weeks ago. As Sally mentioned, there are about 600 cases, but importantly, and I'm going to get back to that in a moment, 
because this is one of the issues which actually brings us here today and caused the discussion that has been intense over the last 13 to 14 months, and that is the 59%, the reported 59% mortality, which makes this a most, most unusual smoldering pre-pandemic threat. As part of our research endeavors, clearly um, interventions in the form of diagnostics, therapeutics, and vaccines were important, but on the lower part of the slide, you see basic research. And that has always been and will continue to be an important part of our mission and our activities. If you look at basic research as we've approached it through the years, long antedating the appearance of H5N1 highly pathogenic virus, through the years, long antedating the appearance of H5N1 highly pathogenic virus, as part of that influenza basic research, was intensive study of host adaptation, transmissibility of influenza viruses, pathogenesis, and virulence. And integral to that study has always been the issue of gain-of-function research, not only for influenza, but essentially for all infectious diseases research. For all infectious diseases research. Gain-of-function research not only for influenza, but essentially for all infectious diseases research. For all infectious diseases research. Now, there are a few ways to look at gain-of-function research. There's the naturally occurring mutations which naturally give gain-of-function, and investigators study these effects on the phenotypes of interest. Does this mutation make something more transmissible, more pathogenic, or adapt to host better. Or what historically investigators have done is to actually create gain of function, is to actually create gain of function, is to actually create gain of function by making mutations, passage adaptation, or other newer genetic techniques such as reverse genetics and genetic reassortment. When we do that, often some, some phenotypes appear and others disappear. For example, it is commonly seen that when you increase a transmissibility, when you increase a transmissibility, when you increase a transmissibility, you may see a decrease in pathogenesis, or vice versa. You may deliberately increase pathogenesis, you may deliberately increase pathogenesis, you may deliberately increase pathogenesis and see a decrease in transmissibility. But the bottom line is that gain and loss of function research is critical to understanding disease pathogenesis, antimicrobial resistance, and host responses, as well as to developing better techniques of surveillance, vaccines, and therapeutics. Specifically, to gain of function research on HPAI H5N1. What we're talking about now is the gain of function research in studies that increase predominantly the transmissibility, that increase predominantly the transmissibility, as was is the case that I'm going to get into in a moment, as well as pathogenesis and alteration of host range of the virus. That increase predominantly the transmissibility, as well as pathogenesis and alteration of host range of the virus. However, it has not been able to continue through human transmission. 
In other words, it has not developed the ability to go from person to person to person to person. It's a very serious disease, and we're hoping that it doesn't obtain the ability to be easily transmitted. Now, the reason we are here today in this room with H5N1, highly pathogenic influenza, and we're not in this room discussing so many of the other gain-of-function research that we do, and we're not in this room discussing so many of the other gain-of-function research that we do, is because naturally occurring HPAI, H5N1 viruses, cause a reported almost 60% mortality in humans, which triggered a concern, understandably, clearly, that if you give a gain of function of a pathogenic virus to make it more transmissible, that's a whole different story than some of the other things we faced. So let's get down to what happened very briefly. You know historically, and I'm going to go very quickly through the historical perspective that brought us here today. There were studies done by two NIH, NIAID-funded investigators, Ryan Fouché and Yoshi Kawaioka, in which H5N1, a strain from Indonesia and a strain from Vietnam, were altered in a gain of function, in which H5N1 were altered in a gain of function, altered in a gain of function, either by direct mutation or by reassortment, were altered in a gain of function, either by direct mutation or by reassortment. And by passage in ferrets, the mammal model for this virus, for humans, there was an increase in, in fact, an, a, an, a, 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 a development of aerosol transmissibility in a mammal which this particular virus did not have. There was a development of aerosol transmissibility, a development of aerosol transmissibility in a mammal which this particular virus did not have. Because of that, this triggered concern. This was after the experiments had been done and after they had been submitted to the journals. And from this uh, press statement, we put it before our National Science Advisory Board for Biosecurity here at NIH, which is representative and advisory to the entire department of HHS as well as to other agencies. And the conclusion was made, and this is critically important for us to understand, and I, and I take this right out of the statement that came from the NSABB, that due to the importance of the findings to the public health and research communities, the NSABB recommended that the general conclusions highlighting the novel outcome be published, but the manuscript did not include methodologic and other details that could enable replication of the experiments by those who would seek to do harm enable replication of the experiments by those who would seek to do harm, by those who would seek to do harm, what also was discussed that might accidentally be released, that might accidentally be released, that might accidentally be released, so it is not just people who would deliberately do harm. As Sally mentioned, following that, there was an explosion of reaction, sometimes bordering on the very extreme, as shown by this editorial from the New York Times and engineered doomsday. This is just one, but as some of you may recall, there was a lot of activity talking about worst case 
scenarios where the world might be destroyed. In that setting, the influenza community voluntarily imposed upon themselves a pause of 60 days from January 2012 on any research involving highly pathogenic avian influenza virus leading to the generation of viruses that are more transmissible in mammals. That was supposed to be a 60-day, and as you know, the moratorium is still in place, the voluntary moratorium on the part of the investigators. But soon thereafter, there began to be an open discussion clarifying that research in different fora outside of the NSABB. The NIH and the CDC, because we do similar work, also agreed that we, in our own intramural investigators, we would refrain from uh, these types of experiments and essentially abide by the moratorium that was signed on by a significant number of our extramural investigators. And I'm talking about the investigators at NIAID and other institutes as well as the CDC. From there came open discussion. Many of you remember the meeting in Geneva in February of 2012, where importantly, new data were presented and even more importantly, original data was substantially clarified, which led that group, which was predominantly influenza people, with a consensus to delay publication, but ultimately to publish them after there had been some more emphasis and discussion of safety, public health, and communication issues, but also they recommended to extend the moratorium in order to have further discussion, as well as reaffirming the PIP agreement. Then back in the United States, what happened was a series, as you can see from the dates on these, of open discussions in, in different forum. There was a meeting sponsored by the ASM on biodefense, shown here, the people who were a part of the panel, myself included, Bruce Alberts of Science, Mike Osterholm of the NSABB, and Ron Fouché, one of the investigators. And we discussed openly the situation of the publishing of these data and the experiments that would be performed. The NSABB re-met the next month and they examined the revised manuscripts with the clarification of data, and they voted unanimously to have Kawaioka manuscript be communicated in full, and in the 12th to 6th decision, also that the Fouché manuscript be communicated after appropriate scientific review and revision, which, as you'll see in a second, actually occurred. Then we had a National Academy of Science workshop where we looked at the lessons learned where did we, how did we get to where we were, and what do we need to do in the future to proceed in a responsible manner? The next day, the publication of the manuscripts occurred, as shown here in the Nature and Science titles. But the discussion continued, and one of the questions that was asked by the investigators, since this was a voluntary moratorium on their part, is how long is this moratorium going to go on and what are really going to be some of the guidelines that we could actually follow on the basis of this. We at NIAID, being the major funders of most but not all of these people, we obviously were connected to that because they wanted to know, since you're our major funders, what kind of research will you fund? There was a major meeting of the Centers of Excellence for Influenza Research and Surveillance this past summer, at the end of July and the beginning of August, 
And as many of you know, I went up there to address the group. And what I recommended is that they continue the moratorium, but that we have the opportunity to discuss in an open fashion that is not only influenza researchers, but people like yourselves. And in fact, the transcript edited of my discussion at the Sears was recently published in Ambio, in which I referred to this workshop. And I said the meeting participants would consider the general principles concerning the rationale for risks and benefits of such experiments and what lines might be drawn in their conduct and the reporting back and forth with the funding agencies. And so here we are. And this is the workshop that I was referring to that will take place today and tomorrow. And the purpose from the standpoint of, and I'm speaking from a pure research standpoint, is to review the key issues related to the gain of function of these viruses, scientific public health, biosafety, biosecurity, and importantly for the decisions we have to make now is the considerations of the possible criteria for funding by HHS, IE, NIH, CDC of gain-of-function research on highly pathogenic avian influenza. As you know, there's a draft framework that Harvey referred to that we will be discussing in detail and you'll have the opportunity to comment on to guide funding decisions. And that's the critical point I want to make from the standpoint of the NIH about this gain-of-function research. Now, just to put it in perspective, are we talking about a major chunk of what we do? No. As a matter of fact, this is relatively small because the research gain of function of transmissibility, et cetera, on H5N1 highly pathogenic is a very minor part, but an important part of our portfolio. It's part of four flu research projects that contain this. It's around 10% of the entire H5N1 portfolio and less than 1% of the total NIAID flu research funding. But it has triggered a very important question. Now, I want to close on these last two slides because I believe it's important that you keep this in consideration. First of all, questions have come up about the concern of the danger of people that you fund. NIAID, NIH, certainly CDC, only funds and conducts gain-of-function research on H5N1 highly pathogenic avian influenza viruses for researchers who are highly trained, skilled, experienced, and adequately regulated. This issue has not been a major concern about the investigators, certainly the ones that I just mentioned, who clearly fall into that category, that was not the concern. The concern was that the products or information that were generated by these experiments might be used by others in a way that could harm society, either carelessly in an unregulated fashion by inexperienced people or even by deliberate misuse. Now, there are some disagreements, and we've heard them in the broad discussion in those months that went from the time of the moratorium until now, there's disagreements as to the scientific and or public health value of these experiments. But I believe the people who feel that they shouldn't be conducted are in the minority. But I believe the people who feel that they shouldn't be conducted are in the minority. But I believe the people who feel that they shouldn't be conducted are in the minority.
Did anyone ask you or me? Are we the over six billion people known as the general public? What you call the minority? Did anyone ask the entire human population of Earth if these potentially deadly, completely anti-nature, anti-scientific, gain-of-function, dual-use studies should continue to be done? Is this the first time you've even heard of this? Because even the most concerned members of NSABB felt that the experiments should be done, but the distribution of the knowledge should be restricted. Now here comes the rub. As of today, there is no mechanism to provide restricted access to information regarding research funded by NIH. So if NIH funds a grant, it is assumed that the results will be published. The only mechanism for restricted access is classification right now. NIAID does not, nor will we fund or do, classified research. So really the fundamental question with regard to our involvement is, and, and the discussion in general, is the issue is the risk to global health of the work that we fund, the risk of not funding that research versus the risk to the global health of the information harming society. That really is the critical question. So therefore, even though, as Harvey said, there are going to be no conclusions or consensus, from our standpoint, the question is, should or should we not fund this research? And that's the thing that we're going to be concentrating on in the discussions that occur. Thank you very much. Oh, riddle me this. When has Dr. Fauci spoken about this gain-of-function, dual-use bioweapon research on SARS, MERS, flu, and apparently every other viral disease known to man in any of his 2020 public speeches and reports, standing right next to President Trump regarding this man-made SARS-2 COVID-19? Good morning, everyone. Um, by way of introduction, I'm Amy Patterson. I've had the pleasure of emailing many of you in the room. In, in a phrase, we are here because of scientific responsibility. And while collectively we bring a broad, diverse range of expertise, from infectious disease expertise, epidemiology, public health, countermeasure development, safety, security, ethics, agriculture, law, we bring a wealth of diverse perspectives and opinions on the topic at hand. We as a scientific community don't know what we're doing, so it's really important to, it's true, I know. But what we share is a common interest in advancing scientific understanding, but first and foremost, a desire to protect public health. And underpinning that common interest is a shared value, a value that when we conduct science, it's important for us to not only think about its aims, its purposes, but also about its implications, its potential repercussions for society. And that's essentially why we're here today. As Tony mentioned, the focus of this meeting is what we're referring to as gain-of-function research. 
And in the context of this meeting, we are referring to research that will confer new biologic properties, research that will confer new biologic properties by enhancing the transmissibility, enhancing the pathogenicity, or potentially expanding or altering the host range, that will confer new biologic properties by enhancing the transmissibility, enhancing the pathogenicity, or potentially expanding or altering the host range of highly pathogenic H5N1. And as Tony mentioned, the reason that is the focus of this meeting is because case reports to date, particularly since 2003, have underscored the high human mortality associated with human infection with this virus. The high human mortality associated with human infection with this virus. So the notion of potentially conferring additional biologic attributes to this agent is really what underscores the concern today. Conferring additional biologic attributes to this agent is really what underscores the concern today. As Tony mentioned, researchers in this community of uh, work demonstrated their commitment to responsible to science by declaring a pause on the research, a pause on research that would increase transmissibility of high path H5. That pause has been in place since January of this year, and we're just about to close out 2012. The community is seeking guideposts for its own path forward. And while this meeting is not going to make a decision per se about that pause, we believe that the discussions here today will illuminate the guideposts that are sought for by that community. And importantly, this meeting is going to provide a wide range of perspectives, hopefully ideas, concepts that we haven't yet thought of, that will inform the Department of Health and Human Services as we finalize our framework for how we will approach making decisions about which of this research we will support, if any, and if we do support it, under what conditions will it be funded and supported. The perspectives that you offer over the next two days are going to be taken to heart as we work to finalize this framework over the next uh, several weeks. We believe, in addition, that this forum will make a significant contribution to the international dialogue on this issue. We hope that the meeting will highlight ideas, perspectives, and approaches that will inform your national efforts for those of you who come from uh, other countries and help inform the way that you think about policy, the way you might approach your own funding decisions. And at this juncture, I'd like to quickly review just the topics on the agenda and, again, some of the meeting mechanics that I think might come in handy for you. Our first panel will entail a discussion of HPAI H5N1 gain-of-function research, its design, its trajectory, its hoped-for aims in terms of addressing public health issues. And after a very quick break, we'll segue into the next panel, which will focus on the risks and concerns associated with, with this research. Now, to aid you in communicating the proceedings of this meeting to friends and colleagues back home, a summary will be prepared in the coming weeks and will be made available to you and to the public. Please know that this is a public meeting. We do have members of the press in attendance. And while we're not webcasting this meeting, we are making a video recording of the event, which we will plan to post for the benefit of those who could not be here today. This is a classic example of how governments keep public information in the private, or in other words, knowing that the public is not going to watch this type of forum. 
from local to city to county to state to federal governments around the country and around the world, this is how public forums remain hidden. As you can see here, the YouTube channel for NIHOD shows 2.7 thousand views of this first initial gain-of-function research. The welcome and introductory remarks we just heard. Then for panel one, which we're about to hear, that dropped significantly to 1.1 thousand views. And of course, panel two, the risks and concerns associated with this research drops down yet again to 656 views. This has been up for seven years, folks, and this is how many views it has had by the public. In other words, it hasn't been viewed by the public at all. And this is the reason I've included it here today. Otherwise, you'd never know it existed. And with that roadmap in front of us, let's begin our first panel. So, a pleasure to uh, thank you, Dr. Patterson. It's a pleasure to introduce the first set of co-moderators for the first panel, uh, which will focus on the uh, HBAI, H5N1 gain-of-function research and its implications for global public health, and then they can actually introduce uh, the panel members. So the uh, co-moderators are Dr. Kanta Subarao, Chief of Emerging Respiratory Viruses Sections here at the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases of the U.S. National Institute of Health, and Dr. Robert Webster, member of the Department of Infectious Diseases in St. Jude Children's Hospital at uh, Tennessee. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. DeGraff. It's uh, my honor to be invited to uh, be a coordinator of this very important topic together with uh, Carter Stuberio. I believe that uh, Dr. Fauci, Dr. DeGraff, and Finberg have given us our mission for today and very clearly laid the background. I want to step back in history for a moment or two. It was over 15 years ago that I went to Hong Kong and the initial outbreak was going on. 18 children were infected, six had died. The decision was to eradicate this virus from Hong Kong and that was successfully done. And I recall at the uh, party on New Year's Eve, the group, including myself, wished Margaret Chen great success at eradicating this virus from society. And that was our mistake. So look where we stand today. There are still something like 60% of those infected die. We don't understand the pathogenesis and mechanism of control. We don't understand, we don't understand, we don't understand the pathogenesis and mechanism of control. This virus has spread from that region of the world across much of Eurasia 
and is now endemic in some of the most highly populated areas of the world, including Egypt, Bangladesh, and Southeast Asia. So we move forward. We've heard the experiments that explain that this virus can be made transmissible. This virus can be made transmissible. It has not been able to continue through human transmission. In other words, it has not developed the ability to go from person to person to person to person. We're hoping that it doesn't obtain the ability to be easily transmitted. Now we have to face the downstream effects of those discoveries. This is panel one of the highly pathogenic H5N1 gain-of-function research, its implications for global public health. That's very important because the scientists have been talking to each other now for nearly 15 years, but the general public haven't bought in to all of the aspects and consequences of the recent research. And our first speaker is Dr. Ron Fouchier, who's a professor in the Department of Virology at the Erasmus Medical Center in the Netherlands. Ron. In, in 2007, the, the so-called Fink Report listed seven categories of experiments that could lead to dual-use research of concern, such as increasing virulence, or transmissibility of pathogens or inducing resistance to drugs, or inducing resistance to drugs, such as increasing virulence or transmissibility of pathogens or inducing resistance to drugs. And those are the issues that are discussed today. This list contains five or six categories of research that have been used in H5 and 1 virus research to date. That have been used in H5 and 1 virus research to date. The reason why so many categories have been used is that this list of seven of the Fink report, exactly represents the research agenda of the infectious disease field. When outbreaks with novel pathogens occur, whether it's enterohemorrhagic E. coli or SARS or SARS or SARS or SARS or pandemic H1 or highly pathogenic H5 and 1, infectious disease specialists get asked the same question time and time and time, and time again. Why does this pathogen cause such a, such a severe disease, and why does it kill humans? Can this pathogen be transmitted between humans and via which routes? Can this pathogen adapt further and infect additional hosts or cause different types of disease? Which drugs that we have work, and can, be, can the pathogens become resistant to these drugs? To answer these questions, infectious disease specialists have to use gain-of-function research. The HHS proposed framework for H5N1 research indicates that alternative methods exist to answer these, methods, these questions. And it would be great if that were true. HHS has listed comparative genomics, predictive modeling, um, and loss of function experiments as ex examples of alternative methods. And although each of these methods can have significant value, none provide the definitive answers to the questions that were asked. These alternative types of experiments mostly yield answers that are partial, suggestive, and correlative. These experiments are therefore generally only performed as a first series of experiments, but the final proof of the pudding has to come from gain-of-function experiments. Yes, Ron, we get it. But this is the equivalent to the logic that in order to know for sure 
the destructive power and patterns of radioactive dispersal of a nuclear bomb, we must drop one on a large, unsuspecting city. That way we'll know for sure. Gain-of-function approaches have answered numerous critical questions from the public health perspective related to H5 and 1. And it's important to realize that some of these answers do not result in direct applications, but are critical for the advancement of science and public health on the longer term. Dual use is clandestinely defined here by one of its main purveyors. Some of these answers, he says, do not result in direct applications, but are critical for the advancement of whatever science and public health in the long term means. In other words, the results have nothing to do with the purpose of the actual or current experiment being funded, but are done intentionally for dual use, or in this case, future purposes, because they would not be funded or allowed otherwise. The real problem, as we'll see, is that no one really knows what science means. Science is not the scientific method, but some corporate structure of patented ideas and biological life forms, artificial intelligence, and, of course, artificial life to go along with it. This will all become clear as we progress. Examples of these are studies addressing the role of the HA basic cleavage site in virulence or the role of HA receptor binding specificity uh, in relation to tropism, host range, and transmission, or the role of NS1 in evading innate immune responses of the host. Through gain-of-function research, we now also know that H5N1 can become resistant to drugs. Through gain-of-function research, we now also know that H5N1 can become resistant to drugs, which has result resulted in increased interest in drug design and drug discovery programs. We got to learn that H5N1 can become airborne transmissible in mammals. We got to learn that H5N1 can become airborne transmissible in mammals resulting in stronger advice from the infectious disease community to countries where H5N1 outbreaks occur to stop these outbreaks, as H5N1 can no longer be seen as just a poultry problem. The transmission research further provides guidance to the WHO and FAO surveillance program to get to the next level and allow the identification of parts of the world that should be prioritized for H5N1 eradication. So there's plenty of positive news for the advancement of science and public health that has come from gain-of-function research. When flu researchers like myself, like myself, when flu researchers like myself from around the globe announced a voluntary 60-day ban on this type of research, this was done to provide some time for organizations and governments around the world to find solutions for the challenges and for the opportunities that stem from this work. And it is sobering to see how much time has been sent on, spent on the challenges and how little on the opportunities. As a consequence, the benefits from the gain-of-function research have not yet been claimed to the full extent. And this is why I have been a strong advocate to convince the NIH and other organizations to stop the research pause and give the green light to continue the research. To stop the research pause and give the green light to continue the research. We have identified key questions for surveillance, key questions for further fundamental research, and we have generated the tools and reagents to better evaluate vaccines and drug candidates. In my opinion, it is undesirable and perhaps even unresponsible to maintain a ban on this follow-up research. All of this research is aimed to prevent flu pandemics, 
to, or to mitigate their impact if they cannot be prevented altogether. Here again, we see this sociopathic logical fallacy card being played. We are supposed to believe that force evolving a more virulent, more contagious, more drug-resistant, more deadly, and of course, more patentable, and thus more profitable, viruses will help prevent the spread and pandemic potential of the natural viruses we copy and intentionally mutate through gain-of-function research by causing those mutations that most often cannot even happen in nature in the first place. To compare what happens in the lab to what happens in nature is patently ridiculous. So in summary, I argue that gain-of-function approaches are essential to advance science and public health in general, but certainly for H5 and 1. Gain-of-function approaches have contributed enormously to advance science and public health. Laws and regulations are in place, and they have been shown to work. Some incremental refinement may be required, but whole new layers of rules and regulations are not needed. Thank you. Our next speaker is Dr. Aditama, who is the Director General of Disease Control and Environmental Health in the Ministry of Health in Indonesia. Ladies and gentlemen, for Indonesia, the research is very important as a guide for risk assessment. As the virus evolves naturally, we need to monitor whether it is acquiring the mutation as found in the research. The research is also potentially to improve vaccine development program. I believe that the benefit of conducting gain-of-function research generally outweighs the risk as long as the research is done in accordance with the ethical clearance and in biosecure laboratory setting. At this point, I would like to raise the importance of active involvement and participation of the country scientists from where the virus is found to be able to solve the real public health problem in the field, in the community, in the people. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you very much. Our next speaker is Dr. Robin Robinson, who is the Director of the Biomedical Advanced Research and Development Authority and the Deputy Assistant Secretary for Preparedness and Response at the Department of Health and Human Services in the U.S. Thank you, Kanda. Thank you, Rob. And thank you for the opportunity to be here this morning. And so we have on this panel, Ron Fouchier, the actual listed scientist that did this original gain-of-function work that caused this debate in the first place. And now we come to Robin Robinson. Now, does Mr. Robinson have any conflicts of interest here? Any reason he should not be on this panel, perhaps? Well, Dr. Robin A. Robinson is the chief scientific officer for Renovacare, a cell renewal company. Cell renewal being a definite dual-use qualification. From their website, we read that Dr. Robin A. Robinson is a respected authority on the development of breakthrough biomedical technologies and a seasoned expert in consummating collaborations with leading U.S. government agencies, Fortune 500 companies, academic research groups, and foreign governments, for which he was cited in 2018 as one of the top 100 innovators in medicine. Notably, Dr. Robinson was appointed as the first director of the Biomedical Advanced Research and Development Authority, or BARDA, at the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. 
with an annual budget of $1.35 billion and a staff of 250 scientists and medical experts. He brought BARDA into prominence as one of the top 10 fully integrated research and development organizations worldwide supporting advanced development and acquisition of more than 240 drugs, vaccines, diagnostics, and medical devices for man-made biodefense threats, pandemic influenza, and emerging infectious diseases, including Ebola and Zika viruses. Yes, Ebola and Zika viruses are currently receiving gain-of-function research studies. Man-made mutations. 32 of these medical countermeasure products that BARDA supported were approved and licensed by the FDA during his 12-year tenure. He concurrently served as Deputy Assistant Secretary, Office of Assistant Secretary for Preparedness and Response in the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, under appointment by the Health and Human Services Secretary, Michael Levitt. Prior to his public service at BARDA, of course, he was a pharmaceutical director of vaccines at Novavax, Incorporated, resulting in discovery and development of more than 12 vaccine candidates. Before entering the pharmaceutical industry, he was an assistant professor in the Department of Microbiology and Immunology at the University of Texas Southwestern Medical School, conducting research on the molecular pathogenesis of herpes virus and, surprise, HIV-1. During his tenure at BARDA, Dr. Robinson initiated over $535 million in contracts, it then goes on to say that Dr. Robinson is a consummate deal-maker, having successfully established over 60 partnerships with federal agencies, including the United States Food and Drug Administration, or FDA, one of the most corrupt organizations in the world, Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, same, National Institutes of Health, the U.S. Army Medical Research Institute of Infectious Diseases, in other words, dual-use biological weapons, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, or DARPA, again, heavy, heavy biological weapons research, the Joint Program Executive Office for Chemical and Biological Defense, of course, the Department of Defense used to be called the Department of War, and the Defense Threat Reduction Agency. His more than 80 non-governmental and commercial partnerships included the Gates Foundation, the Wellcome Trust, the pharmaceutical companies like Sanofi, GlaxoSmithKline, PLC, Novartis, Merck, and Roche Genentech, Amgen, Johnson & Johnson, Crucell, the SIGA, Regeneron, and Emergent, and many others. Dr. Robinson has developed collaborations with universities and foreign governments, including the Johns Hopkins University, North Carolina State, and the United Kingdom, Canada, Australia, France, Germany, and others. At RavennaCare, Dr. Robinson is responsible for setting the company's scientific strategy and leading our science and engineering teams in research and development activities. Dr. Robinson is a key participant in new product innovation and development and is charged with advancing the company's technology along with its FDA submission pathway. Just one more case of a pharmaceutical worker going into government and then back into private practice using his government connections for 
profit. The Dr. Robinson oversees and directs Ravenna Care strategy, execution, and engagement with government agencies, contract research organizations, academic institutions, and select opinion leaders. Dr. Robinson chairs the Ravenna Care Scientific Advisory Board. Now, does this sound like someone who should be deciding on the fate of the entire human population when it comes to dual use or that is, gain-of-function research. No sane person could answer in any other way than absolutely not. And yet, here we are in this supposedly public forum. The Biomedical Advanced Research and Development Authority at HHS and the Office of the Assistant Secretary for Preparedness and Responses, uh, a new agency uh, established in 2006, but has been uh, at the forefront in making uh, available funds for supporting the development and the availability of countermeasures such as vaccines, antiviral drugs, diagnostics, and medical devices that would be needed in a number of different events, including uh, biothreat events such as anthrax, smallpox, pandemic influenza, and emerging infectious diseases. Relative to this type of research, we have actually done an assessment and were not able to identify any of our research uh, that was being funded uh, being in dual use. But it's this last area of advanced development of medical countermeasures with H5N1 where we've moved forward with uh, development of cell-based recombinant molecular vaccines and new antiviral drugs. And in that regard, the gain-of-function activities and research uh, would have a very big effect also in our areas for diagnostics that we work very closely with centers of disease control. And we would uh, benefit greatly by being able to be able to predict what uh, new viruses are circulating and to be able to use the stockpiles that we have made available. The stockpiles have actually become very operative uh, in the course of uh, immunizing the vaccine with the vaccines, uh, laboratory workers, and manufacturing workers for these uh, vaccines for, that uh, make the H5N1 stockpiles. In addition, those stockpiles of antiviral drugs uh, can be made available uh, to those workers that are at high risk. It's the issue of what are the potential benefits and risks going forward if we weren't to do this research that I call your attention to, especially on the antiviral. Because of the uh, prevalence of antiviral drug resistance uh, occurring so quickly uh, with some of the uh, existing antiviral drugs that we have in our stockpiles, we and the NIH have had to look at other targets. And relative to viral targets, uh, lack of gain-of-function studies would really affect some of the viral RNA polymerase inhibitors uh, antiviral drug candidates that we have uh, and others in the U.S. government are sponsoring the development. Vex antiviral drug candidates that we have uh, and others in the U.S. government are sponsoring the development. Uh, to understand, because if those functions uh, were to, uh, the mutations were to affect uh, the function of those genes, since those targets would no longer be effective, then those antiviral drug candidates uh, would become obsolete the mutations were to affect uh, the function of those genes, since those targets would no longer be effective, then those antiviral drug candidates uh, would become obsolete. Those antiviral drug candidates uh, would become obsolete. Uh, 
Secondly, what host cell service receptors. We've had to move to look at host targets for the uh, effectiveness of antiviral drug candidates. And so as we move forward with, say, cyalase uh, service receptors uh, for the hemagglutinin binding, what effect would they have if we do not move forward those research? And lastly, is an area in which uh, the cancer field has moved very briskly forward and is to understanding what are the gene expression profiles of a, a, a given disease, the treatment of that disease, and also the uh, prophylaxis or adaptive immunity associated with the disease, in this case being influenza, to understand those genes that are expressed or, or whether it be turned off or turned uh, down in, uh, during an infection or vaccination or after antiviral drugs. And to these gain-of-function studies would actually then limit us being able to understand that pathogenesis profile. Thank you. Thank you, Robin. Our next speaker is Dr. Thomas Inglesby, who's the director for the Center for Biosecurity at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center in the U.S. Thank you, Kanta and Rob. <clears throat> Thank you, Dr. Fauci, Dr. Patterson. Three major benefits have been argued for creating lethal and transmissible H5N1. Basic science understanding, surveillance, and vaccine and drug development. So will this research benefit basic science? I think yes, uh, clearly, I think that's inarguable. And we'd all like to know more about the biological basis for transmissibility and pathogenesis and the, genetics, the genetics of H5N1. But in my view, this isn't enough to justify the risks. This isn't enough to justify the risks. So second, does the work seem to benefit surveillance for H5N1? And in my view, I don't see it as being practically useful for on-the-ground surveillance systems, but I'm sure we will have a discussion about that today. Only a tiny fraction of avian influenza infections in the world are sequenced, and when they are sequenced, it can take years to analyze them. And surveillance systems aren't set up to provide immediate sequence information that links to immediate action on the ground. It's still not clear to me what actions would be taken if surveillance found H5N1 strains that matched lab-engineered strains. Right now, the recommended action is to cull the flocks of birds known to be infected with H5N1. So if we found H5N1 strains in nature that matched the lab-engineered strains, what would we do beyond what is now recommended? Third, would engineering H5N1 strains to become transmissible benefit vaccine development? Over the past year, I don't think there has been a concrete argument sufficiently describing the case for this, but there are leading experts in the room today who I think will speak to this. And Robin, I just, we just heard from Robin on this. So overall, are the benefits worth the risks? In my view, no. If high-path H5N1 is engineered to spread like seasonal flu, if high-path H5N1 is engineered to spread like seasonal flu, and is engineered to spread like seasonal flu, and if it escapes by accident or deliberately, and if it escapes by accident or deliberately, millions of people's lives could be put at risk, even if the fatality rate is 100 times lower than the current WHO fatality rate of 59%. Once novel flu gets going in the population, it's unlikely we could stop it. Once novel flu gets going in the population, it's unlikely we could stop it. Incubation time is short. Shedding occurs before fever's onset. So it spreads like wildfire. Shedding occurs before fever's onset. So it spreads like wildfire. 
In 2009, H1N1 proved the point. By the time it was recognized, it was spreading around the world with no way to stop it. Flu strains circled the globe annually, infecting as many as 10 to 20% of the world, despite large supplies of vaccine and medicine. Despite large supplies of vaccine and medicine. In the case of H5N1, we have only enough vaccine for a small number of people. So we shouldn't support the work with the belief that we could stop engineered H5N1 from spreading if it escapes from the lab accidentally or deliberately. So we shouldn't support the work with the belief that we could stop engineered H5N1 from spreading if it escapes from the lab accidentally or deliberately. If it escapes from the lab accidentally or deliberately. Accidents are rare, but they happen. Mark Lipsitch wrote a valuable article in MBio describing the recent history of accidents, including lab accidents with SARS in 2003, including lab accidents with SARS in 2003, including lab accidents with SARS in 2003, with SARS in 2003, with SARS in 2003 the 1977 flu escape, the 1977 flu escape, and the lethal meningitis in a lab, lab, lab worker in California last year. Most accidents only affect lab workers, so they have little consequence in society beyond the lab. But accidents with engineered transmissible H5 and H5N1 could be a threat to the global community. But accidents with engineered transmissible H5N1 could be a threat to the global community. A threat to the global community. On the proposed HHS framework for H5N1 funding decisions, I think it's a very good step forward. It's better to have it than not. And the criteria are all generally valuable. But I have concerns, which hopefully we can discuss later today. In specific criterion four, I don't think biosafety risks can be sufficiently mitigated if we don't even agree on what the risks are. Some of us in the room think the high side risk is an H5N1 global pandemic. And some of us, I think, believe that there is not a serious risk. Criteria five and six, it's one thing to say that physical security of strains can be guaranteed, but how can any scientist or any government agency know that publishing the work won't lead to replication with the intent to do harm? But how can any scientist or any government agency know that publishing the work won't lead to replication with the intent to do harm? Even if we had perfect knowledge of the world of malevolent actors in 2012, we don't know what the world will look like in years ahead. Published information will be available forever. Published information will be available forever. And finally, there's wide room to interpret the criteria so reviewers will hold great latitude and power. Beyond the framework, here's my bottom line. I think we should continue the moratorium. I don't think the benefits of engineering H5N1 to become transmissible are enough to warrant the extraordinary risks. We should pursue aggressively alternative approaches to study transmissibility, safer strains, safer vectors, comparative genomics, I think this is a major moment for science broadly, and I do think we should explicitly seek the views of scientists not in the flu community or even here today. We should explicitly seek the views of scientists not in the flu community or even here today. And if we do decide to proceed with funding and with ending the moratorium, I think that we should all who are involved in this work acknowledge the extraordinary risk. The public has a right to know that everyone is on the same page regarding the risks. The public has a right to know. The public has a right to know. The public has a right to know that everyone is on the same page regarding the risks. I think we should also proceed in uh, unprecedented biosafety conditions and with international agreements on how to proceed. Thanks. Thank you. Our next speaker is Dr. Daniel Gerstein, who is the Deputy Undersecretary, Science and Technology, Department of Homeland Security, in the United States. Uh, good morning. I'd like to present. Uh, just two themes from a Department of Homeland Security perspective. The first is that H5N1 threat characterization studies, including these gain-of-function research, 
are essential for protecting against a broad range of biological threats, but we must also mitigate against the threats and risk of such research. And the second theme I'd like to develop is that uh, I'd like to share with you some thoughts about how the Department of Homeland Security has developed capabilities for managing this dual-use research of concern that we hope might prove interesting to others. First, uh, on the H5N1 gain-of-function research, here's how we see the dilemma. Obviously, there's benefits for public health and security communities. It's useful and valuable to understand the pathogenicity of transmissible H5N1. On the other hand, there is this risk of misuse of technology as well as the misuse of the information resulting from the experiments. And so what we have to think about is this cost-benefit equation. But let me state unequivocally that the Department of Homeland Security does strongly support gain-of-function research. Let me state unequivocally that the Department of Homeland Security does strongly support gain-of-function research, does strongly support gain-of-function research. The Department of Homeland Security does strongly support gain-of-function research. It does further health preparedness and response. It promotes innovation, and we certainly don't want to constrain scientific discovery. We do threat characterization work on a wide variety of pathogens. And in fact, we would call this threat characterization work gain of function. And in fact, we would call this threat characterization work gain of function. And we feel it's absolutely essential for understanding disease, for understanding disease. Uh, But most of what we do happens to be with respect to other uh, what we would call bioterror agents. Most of what we do happens to be with respect to other Uh, what we would call bioterror agents, although we have done some work with highly pathogenic avian influenza. My second uh, topic is really to discuss uh, our approach to managing uh, what we consider to be important, but also uh, potentially dangerous work. So when we think about it, let me just start out by saying there is some research that we believe should not be conducted. It is simply too dangerous. There is some research that we believe should not be conducted. It is simply too dangerous. And when we evaluate whether or not it's worthy of doing this sort of work, we rely on the NSABB, National Science Advisory Board for Biosecurity, seven experiments of concern as an excellent foundation for thinking about the problems. We rely on the NSABB, National Science Advisory Board for Biosecurity, seven experiments of concern as an excellent foundation for thinking about the problems. The the so-called Fink Report listed seven categories of experiments that could lead to dual-use research of concern. Those are the issues that are discussed today. This list contains five or six categories of research that have been used in H5N1 virus research to date. The reason why so many categories have been used is that this list of seven of the Fink report exactly represents the research agenda of the infectious disease field. We rely on the NSABB, National Science Advisory Board for Biosecurity, seven experiments of concern as an excellent foundation for thinking about the problems. We also recognize that at lower levels, we have to train project managers and conduct appropriate bio-risk management. We also know that we have to write into our contracts things like biosafety, biosecurity, internal review processes before publication, and looking at information that might result from our studies to see if any classified information might be uh, released. 
We have also developed a structure which we call our Compliance Assurance Program Office, which helps us in looking at the various experiments to determine if they are violating any of the NSABB experiments of concern or whether they raise perceptions of noncompliance with our BWC, Biological Weapons Convention, or CWC, Chemical Weapons Convention treaties. Biological Weapons Convention or Chemical Weapons Convention treaties. The Compliance Review Group meets on a quarterly basis, uh, and they have the mission to look at this cost-benefit ratio as well. And some very practical questions in addition to the NSABB seven experiments of concern that we ask ourselves are, does this experiment need to be done? Is the information necessary for science and or security? Are there other, more appropriate ways to gain the benefit of the information? What is the least dangerous way to accomplish the experiment? Is the experimental design sound is the experiment being conducted in the appropriate containment level? And are there limits on what results should be released or published? And so we do come back to this very delicate balance, uh, this need for legitimate science uh, with the need for security. And with that, I look forward to your questions. Thank you. The takeaway here is that the Department of War, or Defense, that is Homeland Security, has in its possession a homemade, weaponized, highly pathogenic, extremely virulent, and contagious H5N1 virus. Several variations, in fact. But if they label it as legitimate basic research, it's okay. And this is the foundational problem, basic research, that any scientist might do nowadays with current technology is the same exact research that would be done in biological weapons. This is why it is called dual-use research of concern. And remember, these homemade biological weapons are being stored in a military biosecurity lab near you, whose safety record is no doubt questionable. Not that it would matter, because this is a global disease. Release it in one country, it is sure to escape into another. Thank you. Um, our next speaker is Dr. Adel Mahmoud, who is a professor of molecular biology and public policy at Princeton University. Thank you very much. Uh, it's a pleasure to be with you here. Uh, the problem with the discussion we're having today is that it is happening after the fact. It is happening after the fact. Uh, I wish we would have had this discussion a little bit earlier because when the Fink report came several years ago, it mentioned some of these experiments that we are now suffering from or discussing and, and, and concerned about. It mentioned some of these experiments that we are now suffering from, that we are now suffering from. It mentioned some of these experiments that we are now suffering from or discussing and, and, and concerned about. So one issue is we are discussing it after the fact. The second issue is we're discussing it after the facts which unfortunately got mixed up with public announcements about the results of research before the research was submitted and evaluated and published in a refereed journal. So we, we faced a public outcry and the public comments in the newspapers before even the data itself uh, was examined and, and, and became a subject of scientific 
uh, examination. Now, we need also to go back to understanding that we basically do not understand how pandemics of flu occur. We basically do not understand how pandemics of flu occur. It's also extremely important because we as a scientific community don't know what we're doing, don't know what we're doing, don't know what we're doing. We have been concerned about H5N1 for approximately 15, 20 years now, and it was H1N1 that came out in 2009. So in some ways, the necessity of research is absolutely upon us. I mean, nobody is going to say we do not and we cannot stop research that will examine why one strain of uh, the flu virus will tr be transmitted into human populations and result in an outbreak or a pandemic, and another has been circulating around with very, very few cases, and in some ways, even the 59% of, uh, of the announced uh, mortality or case fatality rate of, uh, of uh, H5N1, I'm not sure that that is really accurate data because I don't think we understand the epidemiology in humans that well to say here is the denominator and here is how can we calculate the, the case fatality rate. It's also extremely important because we as a scientific community don't know what we're doing. So we are now faced with two issues. One is a study that was done that was identified from the beginning, or a series of studies were done, that were identified from the beginning under the, the rubric of experiments of concern. And they were approved and funded because they were legitimate studies that needed to be done to understand even if we don't think H5N1, H5N1 will go tomorrow to be transmitted in human populations, understanding its range of transmissibility and pathogenesis is a valuable scientific contribution. No arguments about that. The question is, A, approving it, B, uh, understanding uh, how it will be communicated, and C, funding it. And who should fund that kind of research, which is the question that Tony finally put on the table. Should it be funded by NIH or should it be funded by, by private sources? So in, in effect, uh, the unfortunate thing is that we're coming from behind. And the, the, the opportunity now is, as a community, we just have to start thinking a little bit it going forward rather than just analyzing what happened in, in the past. And, and that's really a challenge, and I hope the discussion today will uh, contribute to that. Thank you. Thank you. Our next speaker is Dr. Ilaria Kapwa. Um, she's the Director of Research and Development Department um, at the Institute of Zooprophylactico Sperimentale della Venezia, Italy. Ilaria. Good morning, everyone. Um, for those of you who don't know me, I, I run a, an international laboratory which is um, active in surveillance, mainly in animals, um, for influenza, mainly in birds, and in particularly in developing countries. Malik Paris, who's sitting next to me, <clears throat> wrote in a, in a paper for Science, I think, that nature is the worst bioterrorist of all. So we know that there are countries out there which have endemic infection um, caused by H5N1, and they really don't know where to bang their head to get rid of this infection. These gain-of-function experiments, if they have 
a reason to exist is because we really fear what is out there in the field. Because we think that there is a bioterrorist out there, which is Mother Nature, which can generate a virus that can become a very severe pandemic virus. So the work that has been carried out by the two teams is extremely important in identifying um, signatures or uh, characteristics of these viruses um, so that we understand which viruses in the field have the potential of becoming potentially pandemic. In other words, these so-called scientists have a belief system that they, mankind, can improve upon nature's or God's design, and more importantly, believe they, collective incorporated science, can protect man from nature and its supreme laws. Now we are starting to uncover the foundational dual-usage intention behind much of this gain-of-function mutation of nature. But this won't be made clear until the next panel is called. However, in an effort to understand this so-called scientific mindset of this scientific community, which is exclusive and even xenophobic of the general public, we're not dealing here with true or natural science. We're dealing with a religious belief system called scientism. The science delusion is the belief that science already understands the nature of reality in principle, leaving only the details to be filled in. This is a very widespread belief in our society. It's the kind of belief system of people who say, I don't believe in God, I believe in science. It's a belief system uh, which has now been spread to the entire world. But there's a conflict in the heart of science between science as a method of inquiry based on reason, evidence, hypothesis, uh, and collective investigation, and science as a belief system or a worldview. And unfortunately, the worldview aspect of science has come to inhibit and constrict the free inquiry, which is the very lifeblood of the scientific endeavor. Since the late 19th century, uh, science has been conducted under the aspect of a belief system or worldview, which is essentially that of materialism, philosophical materialism. And the sciences are now wholly owned subsidiaries of the materialist worldview. I think that as we break out of it, uh, the sciences will be regenerated. What I do in my book, The Science Delusion, which is called Science Set Free in the United States, um, is take the ten dogmas or assumptions of science and turn them into questions, seeing how well they, turn, how well they stand up if you look at them scientifically. None of them stand up very well. What I'm going to do is first run through what these ten dogmas are, and then I'll only have time to discuss one or two of them in a bit more detail. But essentially, the ten dogmas, which are the default worldview of most educated people all over the world, are first that nature is mechanical or machine-like. The universe is like a machine. Animals and plants are like machines. We're like machines. In fact, we are machines. We are lumbering robots, in Richard Dawkins' vivid phrase. 
with brains that are genetically programmed computers. Second, matter is unconscious. The whole universe is made up of unconscious matter. Um, There's no consciousness in stars, in galaxies, in planets, in animals, in plants, and there ought not to be any in us either, if this theory is true. Um, So a lot of the philosophy of mind over the last hundred years is being trying to prove that we're not really conscious at all. Um, So the matter's unconscious, then um, the laws of nature are fixed. Um, This is dogma three. The laws of nature are the same now as they were at the time of the Big Bang, and they'll be the same forever. Not just the laws, but the constants of nature are fixed, which is why they're called constants. Dogma four, the total amount of matter and energy is always the same. Um, It never changes in total quantity, except at the moment of the Big Bang, when it all sprang into existence from nowhere in a single instant. The fifth dogma is that nature is purposeless. There are no purposes in all nature, and the evolutionary purpose, uh, the evolutionary process has no purpose or direction. Dogma six, um, the uh, hered- biological heredity is material. Everything you inherit is in your genes or in epigenetic modifications of the genes or in cytoplasmic inheritance. It's material. Dogma seven, Memories are stored inside your brain as material traces. Somehow everything you remember is in your brain in modified nerve endings, phosphorylated proteins. No one knows how it works, but nevertheless, uh, almost everyone in the scientific world believes it must be in the brain. Dogma eight, your mind is inside your head. All your consciousness is the activity of your brain and nothing more. Dogma nine, which follows from dogma eight, Psychic phenomena like telepathy are impossible. Your thoughts and intentions cannot have any effect at a distance because your mind's inside your head. Therefore, all the apparent evidence for telepathy and other psychic phenomena is illusory. Um, People believe these things happen, but it's just because they don't know enough about statistics or they're they're deceived by coincidences or it's wishful thinking. And dogma 10, mechanistic medicine is the only kind that really works. That's why governments only fund research into mechanistic medicine uh, and ignore complementary and alternative therapies. Uh, Those can't possibly really work because they're not mechanistic. They may appear to work because people would have got better anyway uh, or because of the placebo effect. Um, But uh, the only kind that really works is mechanistic medicine. Well, this is the default worldview, which is held by almost all educated people all over the world. It's the basis of the educational system, uh, the National Health Service, the uh, Medical Research Council, uh, governments, uh, and uh, it's just the default worldview of educated people. But I think every one of these dogmas is... Uh, very, very questionable. And when you look at it, uh, it it turns, they, they fall apart. I'm going to take first the idea that the laws of nature are fixed. This is a hangover from an older worldview before the 1960s when the Big Bang Theory came in. People thought that the uh, whole universe was eternal, governed by eternal mathematical laws. When the Big Bang came in, then that assumption continued, even though the Big Bang revealed uh, 
a universe that's radically evolutionary, about 14 billion years old, growing and developing and evolving uh, for 14 billion years, growing and cooling, and more structures and patterns appear within it. But the idea is all the laws of nature were completely fixed at the moment of the Big Bang like a cosmic Napoleonic code. As my friend Terence McKenna used to say, uh, modern science is based on the principle, give us one free miracle and we'll explain the rest. And the one free miracle is the appearance of all the matter and energy in the universe and all the laws that govern it from nothing in a single instant. (laughs) Well, in an evolutionary universe, why shouldn't the laws themselves evolve? Um, After all, human laws do, and the idea of laws of nature is based on a metaphor uh, with human laws. It's a very anthropocentric metaphor. Only humans have laws. In fact, only civilized societies have laws. As C.S. Lewis once said, to say that a stone falls to earth because it's obeying a law makes it a man and even a citizen. Uh, It's a metaphor that we've got so used to, we forget it's a metaphor. But I want to spend a few moments on the constants of nature too, because these are again assumed to be constant. Things like the gravitational constant, the speed of light, are called the fundamental constants. Are they really constant? Well, when I got interested in this question, I tried to find out. Uh, They're given in physics handbooks. Handbooks of physics list the existing fundamental constants, tell you their value. But I wanted to see if they'd changed. So I got the old volumes of physical handbooks. I went to the patent office library here in London, and uh, they're the only place I could find that kept the old volumes. Normally people throw them away. When the new values come out, uh, they throw away the old ones. When I did this, I found that the speed of light dropped between 1928 and 1945 by about 20 kilometers per second. It's a huge drop because they're given with errors of any fractions of a se- uh, fra- decimal points of error. And yet, all over the world, it dropped, and they were all getting values very similar to each other with tiny errors. Then in 1945, it went up at 48, it went up again. And... Um, then people started getting very similar values again. I was very intrigued by this, and I couldn't make sense of it, so I went to see the head of metrology at the National Physical Laboratory in Teddington. Um, Metrology is the science in which people measure constants. And I asked him about this. I said, what do you make of this drop in the speed of light between 1928 and 1945? And he said, oh dear, he said, you've uncovered... Uh, the most embarrassing episode in the history of our science. So I said, well, could the speed of light have actually dropped? And that would have amazing implications if so. He said, no, no, of course it couldn't have actually dropped. It's a constant. So, oh, uh, well then how do you explain the fact everyone was finding it going much slower during that period? Is it because they were fudging their results to get what they thought other people should be getting and the whole thing was just produced by in the minds of physicists. Um, said, we don't like to use the word fudge. I said, well, what do you prefer? He said, well, uh, we prefer to call it intellectual phase locking. <laughs> so I said, well, if it was going on then, how can we be so sure it's not going on today? and that the present values are produced by intellectual phase-locking. And he said, oh, we know that's not the case. I said, how do we know? He said, well, he said, 
we've solved the problem. And I said, well, how? He said, well, we fixed the speed of light by definition in 1972. (laughs) So I said, but it might still change. He said, yes, but we'd never know it because we've defined the meter in terms of the speed of light. So the units had changed with it. So he looked very pleased about that. They'd fixed that problem. (laughs) But I said, well, then what about big G, the gravitational constant known in the trade as big G? It's written with a capital G, Newton's universal gravitational constant. That's varied by more than 1.3% in recent years. Um, And it seems to vary from place to place and from time to time. And he said, oh, well, those are just errors. And uh, unfortunately, there are quite big errors with big G. Um, So I said, well, what if it's really changing? I mean, perhaps it is really changing. And um, then I looked at how they do it. What happens is they measure it in different labs. They get different values on different days. And then they average them. And then other labs around the world do the same. And they come out usually with a rather different average. And then the International Committee on Metrology meets every 10 years or so and average the ones from labs around the world to come up with the value of big G. But what if G were actually fluctuating? What if it changed? There's already evidence, actually, that it changes throughout the day and throughout the year. What if the Earth, as it moves through the galactic environment, went through patches of dark matter or other environmental factors that could alter it? Maybe they all change together. What if these errors are going up together and down together? For more than 10 years, I've been trying to persuade metrologists to look at the raw data. In fact, I'm now trying to persuade them to put it online on the Internet with the dates and the actual measurements and see if they're correlated, to see if they're all up at one time, all down at another. If so, they might be fluctuating together, and that would tell us something very, very interesting. But no one has done this. They haven't done it because G's are constant. There's no point looking for changes. You see, here's a very simple example of where uh, a dogmatic assumption actually inhibits inquiry. I myself think that the constants may vary quite considerably, uh, well, within narrow limits, but they may all be varying. And I think the day will come when scientific journals like Nature have a weekly report on the constants, like stock market reports in newspapers. You know, this week, Big G was slightly up, the speed on, the charge on the electron was down, the speed of light held steady, and so on. Um, so... Um, that's one area, just one, of the, one area where I think uh, thinking less dogmatically could open things up. I don't have time to deal with any more of these dogmas, but every single one of them is questionable. If one questions it, new forms of research, new possibilities open up. And I think as we question these uh, dogmas that have held back science so long, um, science will undergo a reflowering, a renaissance. I'm a total believer in the importance of science. I've spent my whole life as a research scientist, my whole career. Um, But I think by moving beyond these dogmas, it can be regenerated once again and become interesting and, I hope, life-affirming. Thank you. I believe the right way and the meaningful way to understand what science is and to define science, if you like, is through its methods rather than in terms of its topics. And the important point is that if science has well-defined methods, um, it may not be the case, and in fact it isn't the case, I'm going to argue, that those methods apply to all forms of knowledge. 
So what are science's methods? I think science uh, has some very distinctive characteristics, most of which we're all kind of familiar with, although we perhaps don't, haven't made a list of them, but they're things that are, that are listed up here, things like observation, experiment, measurement, uh, systematization, mathematization, and so forth. And these characteristics of science, I believe, can be brought together into two primary abstract um, categories. And, and so we can really, in a certain sense, boil down what we mean by natural science into the insistence upon reproducibility. So science depends upon repeatable experiments or observations. And clarity. And this means the unambiguous descriptions um, things like measurement, sometimes things like mathematics, um, that science insists upon. And these characteristics, I would say, imply that science's scope of application is limited. What is scientism? Scientism is the belief that science is all the real knowledge there is. And uh, I think scientism is at the heart of the question of the relationship between science and Christianity, or science and, and religious faith. Scientism is not a finding of science. It's, it's a worldview. Uh, it's a worldview um, that uh, has a, an integrating cosmology, that is, it, it, it has an, uh, an integrated understanding of how the world is and what, what it fundamentally uh, goes to make it up. It has an interpretive lens or filter. In other words, it's something that you look through that colors your interpretation of the world if you adopt a scientific position. And it has a number of other things. For example, it has a justifying narrative history. It has, you might be surprised to know, it, it has a community of believers. And those, be that, those believers, that community, look to scientism as a source of ethics. Now, why have I pointed out these things out? I've pointed them out because I submit that these are the kinds of characteristics of a religion. 